Hello. Remington, is that you? Yes, it is. <laughs> Wouldn't that be... Is, is he with you this time? He's about half an inch from the microphone, but he won't make any noise. Oh. I decided I'd let him sit in here, but if he talks, it's your fault. Well, it'll be an exciting podcast. Yeah, you could call it that. That's really the guest I was looking for. I know. Hey, Remington's okay. purring. What, my what? Remington's purring. I can't hear it. Is he on your lap? I just shoved the microphone in his face, but I guess you're not hearing it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was thinking he would talk, but apparently not going to happen. Well, well yeah, he's going to be with you. Is he going to sit with you the entire time? Well, I have to stand, remember? Oh, that's right. He'll be out here. Okay. He's, sitting in, he's sitting in my office chair looking at me. Oh. Wondering why I'm rolling him across the room. What? Oh, you're rolling him across the room? I gotta stand up. So you're pushing him like a baby in a carriage? I, I pushed him like a tuna. This is all going in the damn end of the show again, isn't it? <laughs> I pushed the cat about two feet. He's in the chair. I pushed the chair two feet away from me so I can stand up in front of the computer. Oh, okay. Because otherwise I will fall asleep because you're so boring. Oh, well, yeah. Put that in the end of the show. People already know I'm boring. They, they purposely download my show so that they can fall asleep. I've heard that before. I've heard that before. Probably around hour five or six, they start to nod off. It's not been that bad. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal. This is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition. No, boy, wonder I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gatto, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Buy it, use it, break it, fix it, trash it, change it, mail, upgrade it, charge it, point it, zoom it, press it, snap it, work it, quick, erase it, write it, cut it, paste it, save it, load it, check it, quick, rewrite it, plug it, play it, burn it, rip it, drag it, drop it, zip, unzip it, lock it, fill it, call it, find it, view it, code it, jump, unlock it, surf it, scroll it, pose it, click it, cross it, crack it, switch, update it, name it, read it, tune it, print it, scan it, send it, fax, rename it, touch it, bring it, pay it, watch it, turn it, leave it, stop, format. It, buy it, use it, break it, fix it, trash it, change it, mail, upgrade it, charge it, point it, zoom it, press it, snap it, work it, quick, erase it, write it, cut it, paste it, save it, load it, check it, quick, rewrite it, plug it, play it, burn it, rip it, drag it, drop it, zip, unzip it, lock it, fill it, call it, find it, view it, code it, jump, and lock it, surf it, scroll it, pose it, click it, cross it, crack it, switch, update it, name it, read it, tune it, print it, scan it, send it, fax, rename it, touch it, bring it, pay it, watch it, turn it, leave it, stop on at it. Technologic. 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 So let's say I'm your host Stella and this is Backroll Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast episode 110 for November MMXV. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by the next dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. 
It's been a great ride, but all good things must come to an end. Our paths might not cross again in this lifetime. Take care, all of you. Bye, Grandpa. Goodbye, Mom. Bye, Master Roshi and Mr. Turtle. Goodbye, my friend. So long, everybody! We'll miss you. Live your lives to the fullest, and I'll see you again when you're done. Bye, friend. This adventure's been a great one. The end of the next dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. Episode 50. DBZNextDimension.Lipson.com Let's say goodbye. You know who hosts that? Um, is that Josh Bertoni's thing? <laughs> no, that's Donovan. Who? Yeah, yeah, that guy. I know who you're talking about. Okay. Backroll the Oracle is brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. But hey, if you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service for new issues called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics right to hit the shelves, such as February's Backroll 49 and Gotham Academy number 15, both for $2.69. So, if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Finally, Backroll the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Well, I've just come back from sitting on a couch and sort of mediating between two people, and we'll see if, if the relationship has gotten any better. But here's one of those people right now. He is my semi-irregular co-host, the irredeemable Shay. Thank you back. very much. <laughs> As I've expressed many a times, I yeah. eat my Wheaties and my Bran Flakes every day. I am anything but irregular. Thank you very much. Oh, dear. And, yes, it is true. Uh, there was a, an intervention with Donovan and I on the couch. Uh, I don't want to say much more. Let's just say I'm still standing. He's not necessarily. Wow. Now, he did... Now, I had to quiet you the last time you were on, which was for that out of continuity episode. And I said you had to say what you wanted to say to him. But is there anything you would like to clear the air about now that you're on? And this is an incontinuity episode. Well, I don't have anything specific. I mean, he called me out the last time he showed up on your show. Right. Um, he had a little bit of a, like, a, I don't know, a two year old hissy fit tantrum. I sort of imagined him on the floor kicking and screaming his legs. But beyond that, I. I I got you got nothing, man. Bring it, bring it, buddy. I'm not afraid of you anymore. Well, we'll see. I feel like this this conflict may come to a head at some point, and uh, who knows who will outlast whom. But I will say that Donovan sometimes feels betrayed that you're on now. It seems more often than he is. Oh, without a doubt, the, the Backroll to Orca is uh, <laughs> 2000. I, I think I can say that. Backroll to Orca. <laughs> the Backworld Oracle Podcast 2015 is all about the shag, uh-huh. which is why your ratings have boomed this year, correct? I I, pro- I wouldn't doubt it, honestly. Yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm not holding you down like some other anchors were. Oh, dear. Yeah. And I mean, he, he, he brightened my horizons with Robotech, but you've brightened my horizons with Who's Who. And, and which one will updates. carry you further in life? Let's be honest. It's true. Um, I certainly am packing myself with useless trivia about Kite Man <laughs> by listening to your podcast. So maybe if Alex Trebek asks me about him, I'll know what, that his secret identity is Charles Brown. That's right. Now, I heard a rumor that you, you had to either be a Robotech fan 
or a Star Blazers fan. You couldn't be a fan of both. Is that mm-hmm. true? I don't know what Star Blazers is. Oh, okay. Well, never mind. So I guess that answers my question. Your, I guess you've chosen your camp. <laughs> I guess. Oh, boy. Now, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about is Supergirl, the TV series. Ooh, And yes. I wanted to get your thoughts on this because um, I, that was one of those episodes that you forced me to download because I asked you a simple question. When you think about this preview, you said, hey, we talk about this. Didn't get an answer. I had to download and listen to you talking about it. So now that we've had, I think, three episodes, one was airing just tonight, haven't caught it yet. What are your thoughts about this show that's coming out? Well, I've enjoyed all four episodes that have come out so far. Whoops. <laughs> They've been a lot of fun. The preview, uh, I'm sorry, not preview, the uh, pilot itself was okay. It wasn't spectacular. Like, the, the six-minute trailer was amazing. The pilot itself was pretty good. And I was like, okay, this, this this seems to be okay, but I wasn't wowed. Boy, they cranked it up by the second and third episode. I was like, never mind. I am totally in. It is so good. Yeah. I've watched every episode with my nine-year-old daughter, and I'm trying to view it through her eyes. And that's been really exciting because she's totally into it. She thinks Supergirl is so cool. She loves the villains. Like, tonight, the villain was Livewire. Oh. And she actually got excited about Livewire. She was all up into, you know, like, wow, Livewire is cool. That's a cool way to get your powers. You know, she was really into it. And then uh, during the commercial breaks, because t- tonight's episode had uh, guest stars Helen Slater and Dean Cain, mm. uh, the the 1980s Supergirl and the 1990s right. Superman. So during the during the commercial breaks, I was showing the kids, because my, my 16-year-old uh, steps on and watches as well tonight, pictures of them in their super suits, you know, from the 80s and 90s respectively. And they're like, that doesn't look right. They started criticizing Helen Slater's Supergirl costume. They're like, no, she's supposed to have leggings, and the S shouldn't have yellow in it. And <laughs> So clearly they are very much on board with the new show. They are, yeah. I, I fell in love with it, I think, with the pilot. I, I think I would agree that the, the episodes following the pilot have certainly have grown in strength, but I just really love Supergirl and Kara and, and just – the characterization of her and the actress is doing such a great job, I think, of being super awkward as Kara. <laughs> and, um, and I'm glad that she's really learning the ropes. Like, she hasn't gone in and been this fantastic superhero, but, you know, she's struggled and she's been learning. And I also love just the theme of she's trying to be her own person. She's not trying to be Clark. She's not trying to be Superman. So I think for a flagship for, you know, females and have a, a female lead, that this is a great start. So I'm super happy about it being a trailblazer. And I think it's fair to say I, I did fall in love with uh, Melissa – is it Melissa Benoist? I think is how you say yeah. her name maybe. I fell in love with her as Supergirl in the first episode. Absolutely mm-hmm. did. She was yeah. great. It was just the story that I was like, eh, not so sure on. But again, by the second episode, I was in love with the whole show. It's fantastic. Now, I, I do wonder – if the Cat Grant angle is going to get old after the first season, because um, it's already starting to grate on my nerves a bit. Tonight actually was a pretty interesting episode with Cat. I enjoyed her portrayal per- per- tonight. If I can get any of my words out correctly, apparently. I'm slurring them all, and I haven't been drinking, I promise. It's that Snickers bar I had before we recorded. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, I hope that that particular angle doesn't get old, but mm-hmm. we'll see. And and someone it may have been Michael Bailey, but I, I can't recall. Sort of compared it to Smallville, how you know she created the problem and now they've got to fix it. And that's something that's also happening on Flash, right? There are these villains coming in. Yep. Um, and I guess there is sort of a theme, uh, a running theme that has been happening. But I, I just I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like it's 
rote and that it's the same old, same old. Do you feel that way? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Fifth episode. Uh, well, you know, we'll have to see how things go. Now, did you hear about the um, preempting of tonight's episode? I didn't. Yeah, they uh, apparently the episode they were supposed to show tonight was, and I realize people are going to be hearing this, you know, a little later than actually when we're recording. But the tonight's episode was supposed to be about some criminal bombing National City. Oh wow! And in the light of what happened in Paris, they actually took that off the schedule and replaced it with an episode that was supposed to air a week from now. Mm, and okay. so that, that was yeah, interesting on CBS's part. I think it was probably a, a, the right choice. Mm-hmm. But so. Yeah. What do you think about the uh, the males? Sort of the love triangle that's going on? It's a little... I don't know yet. I can't place it. Because, I mean, Wynn is clearly in love with her. And Mm -hmm. she either just doesn't see it or doesn't care. Mm -hmm. And she's head over heels for uh, Jimmy. And, of course, Jimmy's dating Lana. (laughs) Or, no, Lucy. Lucy, yeah. It's a very, you know... It's it, it's a lot. It, it's yeah. a lot of uh, melodrama. It's but it's fine. It doesn't bother me. It, it doesn't dominate too much of the show. Mm-hmm. But I do feel bad for Win. It seems almost like he's never going to have a shot. <laughs> yeah. The what is that? The friend zone there. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny because we met. Well, Josh and I decided that we were going to try our hand at just staying in the press room after Gotham. Mm-hmm. Seeing if we could get away with it because Supergirl was right after, um, mm-hmm. and then right after that was going to be uh, the the DC Legends of Tomorrow, mm-hmm. and uh, so we stayed, and so I got to meet all these people, and not knowing, of course, you know how much I would enjoy the the actual TV show, so that was great in hindsight. That's right, you sent, uh, you tweeted out a picture of you with Supergirl. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. so cool, so cool. Well, I think that's all the uh, the preamble that I have. All right. <laughs> so the reason why Shag is on here is because I threatened him, and he knew about this months in advance, that he was going to come on for Hacker Files. I think the very first time we recorded together, you said the next time you were going to have me on with Hacker Files, and yet we've recorded <laughs> like 18 times together since then. It's true. Yes. I, I guess I've sort of appointed you as the go-to person in case there's this off-brand, you know, off-brand meaning not something that's not Batman, something that's not detective, that I'm just going to go to you so that you can help me fill in the gap. And it's worked out so far, <laughs> for better or for worse. Well, fact is, you were in diapers, and I lived through this era. So, I mean, it's, it's you know, you need somebody who, who knew how, what went down. Yeah. And I was actually working in a comic book store during some of this. You were, yeah, and I feel bad because, you know, I said I had all these experts on uh, when I recorded a future episode, and you said, well, gee, I worked in a comic store, and then I felt bad. I think you referred to them as podcasting giants. (laughs) I did. And as far as I know, only one of them is actually tall. Um, So obviously you were referring to, you know, whatever their accomplishments, and I'm thinking, what am I, short? What am I, a podcasting midget? So I'm I'm rightfully offended. I apologize. No, you don't. But... (laughs) Not even a little bit. Uh, the beauty of it was you were actually texting me throughout the entire recording with those schlubs. Yeah, well, that's what happened. See, I wasn't talking very much because I was occupied. Exactly. But, yes, yeah, so Hacker Files, and the entire time we mentioned Hacker Files, we, it was a big question mark for us. Uh, even you oh. and your expertise. Oh, come it was, on. It wasn't a question even- mark. We, we, we openly sneered at it. <laughs> 
Because we're like, come on, Hacker Falls, an an eight-issue miniseries that no one either has ever heard of or remembers. Was it? No way. You don't even know how many. (laughs) Seriously, it was 12? Okay. Well, either way, we, uh, oh my gosh, it was. Anyway, we... Wow. Anyway, we we made fun of it the whole time. We're like hacker files. Right? No one either remembers it or even you know or heard of it. Yeah. And we're like, I don't know, whatever. It's about hackers. You know, comic book hacking. This should be a this should be a real winner. It should be. Uh, yeah, that's what we were thinking. Well, I guess we won't we won't spoil what our thoughts are coming into it. But I I would like to think, even though I'm not as skilled or as wise as you, Shaq, that generally if someone were to say a title of a book, I would at least be aware of what they are, if not, you know, have much detail. But I had never heard of a book called Hacker Files. And so I honestly did have low expectations. I was thinking to myself, oh, that's probably just going to be mentioned or one panel, so maybe I can just dismiss it and say, hey, she appears in here. But in fact, she's somewhat highlighted. Mm-hmm. Um, and just to, to give a background as to what Hacker Files is or was, it was 12 issues, and it was a miniseries, or I kind of think of that as a maxi series, but whatever. Published from August 92 to July 93, and it was written by Lewis Shiner and illustrated by Tom Sutton. And Lewis Shiner is known as a cyberpunk novelist. Not really sure what that is. You could probably look up what cyberpunk is. Really? Do you know what cyberpunk is? Sure, yeah. Oh, okay, well. I mean, it's the whole idea of having technology in your head and you jack in and these guys are on the cutting edge and they're, a lot of times they're like criminals hacking into stuff, things like that. It was yeah. a huge, huge thing in the 80s and then the 90s, yeah. There's a uh, role-playing game called Shadowrun. Um, the Matrix, to some extent, has some mm, cyberpunk okay. concepts in okay. it. Yeah, all kinds of stuff like that. It reminds me of the storyline with um, Miguel O'Hara's brother, because you're reading Spider-Man 2099. Remember his brother? Hell to the yeah, I am. Yeah, he used to hack in and do stuff. But it was yep. kind of like almost like a drug addiction over there in 2099, it seemed like. Well, again, cyberpunk was a big deal. The guy who popularized the term was William Gibson, by the way. Oh, thank you for that. <laughs> uh, so this story actually was notable for the first appearance of a post-Suicide Squad Barbara Gordon. Of course, we wrap that up. And then it introduces the Digitronics computer, which is a brand that continued to show up in the DC universe for years afterwards. So there's a little thing there. Did they so, really? <laughs> apparently, yes. Okay. Uh, the main character is Jack Marshall, and this character is based on an unpublished novel called Red Weather, which details the experiences of a young programmer named Jack Marshall who worked for a Texas-based computer company named Warex. So there, there's some uh, some background for you, <laughs> and it's kind of steeped in some other novels and everything. But it's basically lots of hackers, actually, kind of this group of hackers that go around. But we are only going to talk about two issues. And actually, from these two issues, I felt like I got a good sense of what the whole series would be about, uh, though I did not read all 12 issues. But yeah, it seemed to be like little... Um Short storylines, like you know, the, this story that that we read really is a two issue story. Mm-hmm. So it almost seems like maybe they had you know a little compartmentalized the, the the way they were telling the stories. Like if you look later on down the run into those issues that didn't even know existed, there's you know uh, issues two through four or one through four represent something called software, uh, soft war. I'm sorry. Issues seven through ten represent something called working class hero. So I mean, it's like small stories within the twelve issues, which is kind right. of a cool idea. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but it is, of course, hard. The only difficult thing I would say for me personally, I don't know about you since you are wise beyond your years, which are many, um, is that <laughs> – is that, you know, coming in at five and six, you've got to be really quickly acquainted with the characters. So that's the only thing. So the story, I think, worked really well on its own. But you've got to figure out who these people are and also visualize them and then connect them between the two issues since you haven't known them since issue one. So that's the only difficult thing. But as with all things, I would say. So Okay, so we're going to do Hacker Files five and six. What do you think? Should we do five and then six, recap it, bam, bam, and then review both of them, or do you want to take it one issue at a time? Let's do them both. Okay. So we're going to start with Hacker Files number five, Operation Moonwitch 1.0. December 92 is the cover date. Who knows about the Wayback Machine if I took that with Mr. Peabody? It would take you to uh, October 20th, 1992. Okay. So lies and betrayal on the covers, as always. Writer Lewis Shiner, penciler Tom Sutton, inker Mark Buckingham, and colorist Laverne Kinzierski. So some black vans appear outside a residential area, and men with weapons and black clothing enter the house, gather the family into the living area, and take all electronics and telephones, though one appears later because the father brings it in from work. Uh, The father believes these to be thieves, but they are actually Secret Service agents, and they are taking one of the daughters, Jennifer. But before she's taken away, she shouts that they need to call Hacker, whoever he is. Elsewhere, in a business district, Ms. Colbert, not related to Colbert, like the Colbert Report. How do you know? <laughs> because it was spelled differently. Oh, well, there's that. Because hers was C-O-B-E-R-T and his is C-O-L-B-E-R-T. Actually, yeah. actually I know who she is. Oh, okay. I'll tell you in a bit. Okay. She gets uh, super frustrated to the point of yelling that her computer has gotten yet another virus. She then talks about how reliant the culture is on technology, which I actually really like because this is relevant today. But they can't be trusted. Uh, She decides to try to contact Oracle for help getting through the virus. Oracle agrees to help and goes to contact Sue Denham. But according to some of her hacker friends, she has been missing for some time. Sue's real name is Jennifer, the girl who was taken from her house. Oracle then calls the family and they explain what happened and mention the name Hacker. Elsewhere, Hacker wakes up naked. That's your cue to say he's hot. He's hot. And the person on the phone says plan B, which happens to mean that his phones may be tapped and he has to call from a random payphone, give the number and code and get called back. The caller is one of the speed metal kids who are the eyes and ears of Hacker. Freddie, a friend of Sue, tells Hacker that Sue was taken because of an E911 document. Uh, I just want to pause here. Did this idea of speed metal kids remind you at all of the Hawk and Dove readings that we did with those cyberpunks actually no no okay (laughs) i was thinking about this and i thought oh Oh, geez no see this is how you do computer hacking stuff the right way in a comic book the way they did in hawk dove was the wrong way to do it i would i would agree with that 
Uh, in a holding facility in Georgia, Sue's being questioned in her bathrobe about the E911. But please, how old is Sue? Like nine or ten? Well, yeah, I would say tweens, man. Yeah. She's not very old, yeah. Poor little kid. I know, and no parents. They're doing some illegal stuff here. They also have a printout of hacker names plus a phone log of calls between Sue and Freddy. And by the way, Freddy is spelled with a PH in case you're wondering. <laughs> so this – and let me know if I'm incorrect on this because I, I read it several times and was trying to make sense of it. E911 document gives the details on how the emergency services work. Yes, and, and, yeah. how you can, and if you interpret it right, you can how you can screw it up and make it fall apart. Right, okay. So, yeah, so the feds and the phone company are afraid that anyone with access to it could wreak havoc on response time. So then a decoy was made called Operation Moonwitch. Is that what you sort of got there? Yeah, I don't know that I paid attention that closely because oh. I knew someone else was doing the recap. I'm okay. just saying. Well, I just wondered if maybe you could shed some light, but that's okay. So I believe that a decoy was made for this E911. It was called Operation Moonwitch, and the headquarters are at a training center in Georgia. The woman in charge is Jane Chandler, and she is someone who is a troglodyte. She hates technology. That's what my thinking is. Of course, this is 92. Try the best I could. So it seems like the operation has already busted some tech people with their computer equipment confiscated, and Pafredi warns Hacker to check his hard drive for a planted E911. Hacker finds it, wipes it, and then he follows a trail to an ex-friend called Yoshio, which is a detail that I think because we did not read any earlier issues, I was not sure who Yoshio was. Oracle watches an interaction between Hacker and Pafredi, talking about the frame-up, then calls Miss Cobert and tells her that Sue is in walk-up, that Jack Marshall, a.k.a. Hacker, will cause problems if he tries to get Sue out of jail, and that Miss Cobert needs to use her influence to do something about it. We then see Oracle and her wife outside the digital world, a slave to the elevator. She is most comfortable online. She's unable to go grocery shopping because the elevator is broken. So she ends up getting a copy of the E911 to check out and then goes to bed. She has a scary dream about dancing with Joker and is awoken with Secret Service agents in her apartment. And she shoots one thinking he's the Joker and then is told that he was actually an agent and she's now in some big trouble. So that was Moonwitch 1.0. What? And this isn't really commentary, but it does seem that the the E nine one one documents are being placed on people's hard drives just for the sole purpose of rounding up these hackers. Like right. they, want, they want to get them out of the way. And and the E nine one one document reminds me a little bit of um, I don't know if you ever saw does it uh, I don't know one of the Die Hard movies, one of the more recent ones, Die Hard with the Vengeance, I think. Okay. And that that whole one, the premise of that one was there was a quote unquote fire sale, which is where you take down all the emergency services, mm. and it just throws the whole country into chaos. Right. And it, it, this echoes, or this, I guess not echoes, but this sort of hints at that same kind of concept. Yeah, I guess my question is, you know, who is sending this E911 document out? Is it this Toshio guy? Or um, was it Moonwitch? I guess that, maybe that question never got answered, did it? Hmm. Yeah. So that's why I was kind of working through trying to figure out was, how it was all coming together. Hmm. That's okay. So we'll move on to Hacker Files number six, and that's Operation Moonwitch 2.0 now. And uh, the lie tells us that January 93 is the cover date. And the actual release date was November 17th, 1992. <laughs> Thanks to uh, Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which uh, apparently does not – that URL doesn't work on Stella's computer. It doesn't. I, like I said, I've, I've got sort of a protection 
Uh, its name is Oracle, and it protects me from any sort of Brainiac-esque viruses, uh, which Mike's amazing world do- has. He's going to figure out you sooner or later. <laughs> you're going to ruin the day. You know what? You're going gonna to wake up one day with an E911 document on your oh, drive. Oh, gosh. And someone banging on the door. You know, so a federal agent came to my uh, parents' house one time looking for me. Bull crap. <laughs> I kid you not. Going on a, you were you not. going on a date with them or something? No. Let me no, they were looking because this is what happened. This is a little thing, and then I'll get in the hacker files. But true story. I was uh, I have an architecture major as well as my Latin major, and at one point <laughs> I was a, taking that's a useful degree. Hey, <laughs> I, at one point I was taking pictures of a post office. I think it was of like the cantilever that was in there for for some project, and apparently someone wrote down my license plate. Said that you know there's a suspicious girl taking pictures at the post office. And so a federal agent comes to my parents. I, you know, I think it was a holiday at that point, so I was with them during college. And then uh, they're knocking on the door at 9 a.m., I remember, and they, uh, I did not get called out, but my parents just explained, you know, what I was taking pictures of and for why. <laughs> they explained, our daughter, she's special. Uh, so racial, racial profiling is actually a lie. I don't know. I've met you. Um, you look dangerous. You, you you look shifty and dangerous and abnormally short. And I can see why they might be worried about you. Yeah, maybe. But anyways, that's my experience with the federal agent. Uh, so I feel very related to this story right now. Um, <laughs> so Operation Moonwitch 2.0, uh, same writer, which is Lou Shiner, penciler, Tom Sutton, inker, Mark Buckingham, and the chorus this time is Digital Chameleon. I don't think that's comma, 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 chameleon, but digital chameleon. It could be. Okay. It should be. Comma, 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 chameleon. You come and go. You come and go. <laughs> so Oracle is rolled into the same holding facility that Sue is in, and she feels humiliated. She's introduced to Sue, who is in a neighboring cell, and Sue believes that Babs is, in fact, Oracle, but she actually says her name is Amy Beddoes, realizing that she needs to be more careful from now on. Oracle explains that she has been in prison because she shot a cop, but luckily he's okay. I mean, honestly, let's hope he was wearing a vest, but that should teach them not to enter without announcing themselves. Elsewhere, Hacker and Pafretti, using Plan B, discuss Sue and other matters and plan to break her out. It helps that the whole complex uses Digitronic computers, which Hacker actually created. So they create a problem and then get called in to fix it. Elsewhere, with Ms. Colbert, Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, and Colbert talk about what happened to her in the previous issue, and she enlists his help in stopping Hacker from creating chaos because he's dangerous and skilled enough to break into NASA, the Justice League, and more. You know what that you know what that building is where she works, right? I don't. I think it's the UN building. Oh, really? Take a look at it. Anytime now. <laughs> well, I have to. I you know my notes are written on. Okay, never mind. Document. Okay, I'm seeing this. Yes, it could be. And where what I know about this character is, for several years she was the liaison for the Justice League Europe. Mm, Okay. And very affiliated with the UN. Okay. So that makes sense then. Because um, one of my questions was how, how in the world does she have such a close connection to Green Lantern? And I felt like Oracle knew she had those connections because of the way she said, use your resources. Mm. 
but I wondered. So thank you for clearing that up. Yep. So at the holding facility, Hacker and Pafretti shows up to fix <laughs> show up to fix the computers in a U-Haul van. And while they pretend to fix the computers, they disable the alarms, open the cell doors. Sue tells Oracle they need to go, but Oracle says she is not leaving without her computers since they are her life. Sue helps her out, and once they encounter some soldiers, they create a distraction with a fake fire and some fire extinguishers. They meet up with Hacker and Pafretti and find a whole stash of technology. They stick the confiscated items inside the U-Haul and put Oracle in the trailer with them. And on the way out, they are stopped by Green Lantern, and Hacker gets upset enough to try an attack on Green Lantern. Probably the dumbest thing you could do. Colbert then meets Amy Beddoes on behalf of Oracle, and she mentions Jane Chandler, the leader of Moonwitch, as the group is surrounded by agents. They are taken to Jane Chandler, where a hacker starts yelling, and Colbert shows her Justice League International credentials. The ladies have a tete-a-tete, where Colbert talks about the harassment by her agents and the abuse of the system, blaming the shooting of the agent on the fact that they came into Amy's apartment without actually announcing themselves as federal agents. Oracle then proves how they were framed, explaining that the document appeared, then there were phone calls, all coming from Yoshio's terminal, so someone must have stolen his password, but we just don't know. Chandler drops the charges, lets the group go, even though Hacker wants the people who took over Digitronics to be investigated. And then we wrap up with Babs moving into a new place, because at the old place she feels like she would be living in a glass cage. Not sure what this means. Perhaps it's because the Secret Service broke in and they'll be watching her now. And any of the people close to her could potentially be vulnerable. At least she protected her Oracle identity, right? She gets set up and now, alone with all her things, she feels lonely. So after setting up her computer, she gets a message from Sue, who obviously realizes that Amy equals Oracle, saying, Happy housewarming, love Sue. And Oracle cries, feeling by herself, but not necessarily alone. And thus ends Hacker Files, our nice little Hacker Files experience. <laughs> Operation Moonwitch 1.0 and 2.0. You know, I, I dug through my, my, my file system to figure out what, well, just looking at my comics in general, my database list, turns out I actually own Hacker Files number six. What? And I must have read it at the time. You know, I mean, now it's 23 years or so since it came out. But I would have bought it because Hal was in it is why I would have bought it. Oh, and okay. so I probably bought it because Hal's on the cover. And the covers, actually, we should talk about are really interesting. They're they're like artistic collages. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. Do we have a cover? Do we have like a cover credit? Because I doubt it's the same guy. Um, let me see what they say at this weird little website. Ah. Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics says the cover's actually by Tom Canty. Mm, okay. Which would explain it. They're, they're actually like collages of different things. Like number six actually has like a CD with a Green Lantern symbol and shows prison bars. And it looks like stuff, you know, circuit boards, like a photo of a circuit board. Yeah. And so it's a, it's very in fingerprints and stuff. It's really interesting the way they did yeah. the covers. Yeah, I really like the um, number five, especially with you've got the chip, right? And the chip says, well, I guess it'd be an actual hard drive. Um, and it's got Digitronics, but then you have that little window of the neck down, or I guess like chest down, which for you, Jack, of Oracle, but, you know, her legs are bound, so she's sitting in a chair, but her legs are really tied up, and I think, which is really representative of sort of the struggles that we see in this uh, particular issue. Yeah. But yeah, I, I would also second just that they are super interesting, um, 
as they do a mixed medium collage almost. That's the best way to put it. Yep. Uh, so overall thoughts uh, coming into the we, we had a negative negative outlook as to what this was going to be like. We were going to be very dismissive of it. Dismissive. So overall, what did you think of your experience of Hackerfiles? It was very enjoyable. I mean, I, I would to the point where I'd actually be willing to go out and read the other ten issues. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed this quite a bit. I, I liked the compartmentalized story. I mean, it was just two issues. Boom, done. You know, we got a complete story within two issues. I mean, there's some dangling subplots in there, but for right. the most part, you know, it had a beginning, a middle, and an end. We followed a journey with, uh, especially. I mean, the nice thing was it was so focused on Babs. We followed a journey with Babs, mm-hmm. as as there was a lot of stuff talking about. You know, as you mentioned, her, she her being a slave to the elevator, and how she tried to get a first floor apartment for months and months and months to no luck because everyone wants first floor apartments. Right. And you know, at, as you mentioned at the end, the new apartment she's got is on the first floor. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's really cool. And honestly, this is probably the most realistic depiction of what Oracle's life would actually be like. Absolutely. Rather than being glamorous and living in a you know a clock tower and having mm-hmm. planes and secret agents in the field, it's actually this lonely woman who hides behind her computer because she doesn't have much of a real world life. And her real, and as far as she's concerned, her quote unquote real life's online. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's the apartment was kind of crummy. And, it's, and her life was hard. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And you know, since this is the first depiction of her post Suicide Squad, where we've kind of delved into her personal life, but because we were focusing on so many other characters, you couldn't take so much time away from her. It was interesting that we took a book that not many people may be aware of to actually explore that uh, piece of her life. And I totally agree with you that. Once I started reading, uh, first of all, it starts off with a really intriguing opening where these people in black are breaking into this house. And, of course, you think that the family is being round up to be shot, but then you find out that they're uh, (laughs) federal agents. They take this young girl away. So it's very interesting, but I was uh, interested the entire way. Um, I could keep track of everything. The only trouble, like I said at the beginning, certainly were the characters because you were introduced to them the first time here. Whereas, before you know, if you had started with issue one, you would have known him. But um, Hacker seemed like a really interesting character because, I mean, the first time you see him, he just seems like he may be a bit of a bum, you know, waking up naked and just, like, completely out of it. And then he's got these kids that he says keep, tr- like, track of him and, and tell him basically what to do. So that's, like, an intriguing idea. Um, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. It's so weird that we we thought it was going to be bad and it wasn't yeah it was quite quite good uh what do you think about going back to oracle what did you think about the joker scene um with her dream sequence you never really see his face but you know dancing um and then of course it cuts to she believes someone is is coming into her apartment and then she actually has that gun that she uh purchased a while back with the um mind ball core story Potentially, it's the same gun. Uh, so, what did you think about that whole sequence? It was it was it was just made me sad because it's you know seeing her dreaming and obviously this still haunts her dreams after all this right. time. And then a, you know she's she's standing up. She's the Joker sits her down and suddenly her legs are bound. Mm-hmm. You know, as if to the wheelchair, and it's just it's so sad. But it, it does echo what she probably goes through on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and it's something I want to talk about when we do the annual because I think there's I think. 
there's a lie written in there, but we'll get into that. But I don't think, yeah, I absolutely don't think she's over this yet. And I think at, at some point you kind of want this this whole killing joke to stop being referenced. Um, whereas, like, now, I feel like 2015, we need to stop referencing it, perhaps. But I think the, <laughs> the wound... It, well, the I only say year. that because it, it happened. It happened in the beginning of the, the Gil Simone run. You know, it was it was a big story point. I'm like, oh, man, can't we move past it? But but I feel like here the wound is certainly... is It's still fresh. And if this is in continuity or in the same timeline as the annual, we find out in the annual that it, it's a year anniversary of the Killing Joke. So... Yeah, definitely. If if it's only been a year since that has happened, I think it's going to be on her. But I'm actually surprised she still has the gun, especially, I don't know if you've read those Suicide Squad issues, but Amanda Waller had to talk her down from shooting Mindboggler. Um, Was it Mindboggler or, um, or The Thinker? Oh, you're right, The Thinker. Okay. Sorry about that. Well, b- that both yeah. are Firestorm characters. That's why I <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sadly. Uh, yeah, Carmichael, right? <laughs> yeah, Cliff Carmichael. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Uh, yes. It, I remember what I was going to say a minute ago. If, if these issues have any failings, it's in the second issue where Hacker and the other kid break in and quickly disable all the cell doors and everything and let everyone out. I mean, given that it's such a high security place and you know mm-hmm. all these agents come and go it seems sort of ludicrous these guys could get in and open all the cells and they have like a good 20 30 minutes to get out of there because yeah. they load all this computer equipment into the back of the u-haul which had to have taken a while yeah it also says uh that you know this story would have saved itself a lot of effort if online backup had existed back then they wouldn't mm-hmm. have, they wouldn't have to recover their computers but right one of the hackers names on oracle's computer was spider and I wondered what you thought. Do you think this could be Money Spider, a.k.a. Anarchy? Or do you think it's just like someone's hacker name? Is hmm. I mean, it could certainly be. But at the same time, and again, this is probably before you were, you know, even a, I don't know, microcelled organism. Um, <laughs> the early days of the Internet was called the World Wide Web. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the term spider came yeah. up a lot. Yeah. Um, some of the earliest search engines before uh, before Google were things like uh, web crawler, meta crawler, all sort of inferencing spiders. Mm-hmm. So they, it could be the anarchy character, but it, it could just very well be a coincidence as well. What did you think about the Green Lantern appearance? Um, it didn't serve a lot of purpose, although I did like yeah. the. I, it didn't. It served enough, obviously, to make me buy it. But I did like the scene where they're driving away, and Green Lantern is there stopping him. And it's not like a big, splashy superhero moment, but he's just standing in the middle of the road with his hand up. And it is sort of a, oh, crap moment. Because, you know, here's these humans been running around all this time, and suddenly they're confronted with a real-life superhero with a magic ring. Mm-hmm. And they're like, they are not getting out of this. This this game is up. <laughs> and sure enough, it was. Mm-hmm. Green Lantern stopped them. But uh, other than that, it's, it almost seemed like a gimmick to sell the book. Yeah, I also thought it was a little random. I guess I understand where Ms. Colbert is coming from because she said that he could take – he's so powerful. Hacker is so powerful, even though for some reason kids need to keep track of him. But he's you know so smart and intelligent that he could break into any of these organizations. So we need you know a member of that organization to come and potentially take him down. But it does seem like overkill because you know, these are super depowered humans – because, you know, they, they don't even fight, even though he decides he wants to go and attack Green Lantern, which is a bad decision. Never a good call. Never a yeah. good call. 
But I, I think you're, you're right, probably, that it is more of a gimmick to let's bring in these DC characters so that this unknown book is able to potentially get get some sales, maybe, or interest. Well, interestingly enough, uh, we're only a couple of months away, maybe even sooner than that. I don't know my months off the top of my head of Hal Jordan going nuts and murdering all his Green Lantern friends. So maybe this is what pushed him over the edge. Yeah, well, next, I mean, coming up is um, Zero Hour. Well, this is before but then. you mean though. it's something, okay. Yeah, I mean, he Hal Jordan flips in starting in Green Lantern number 48. Mm-hmm. And that was, I believe, 93. I'm, I'm Googling as we speak. Okay. Late, uh, here we go, late 1993 is when Hal loses it. Okay. And here okay. we go, this is uh, late 92. So, yeah, I mean, for, maybe it wasn't the destruction of Coast City that okay. pushed Hal over the edge. Maybe it was dealing with Hacker. Maybe we need to do more. Yep. We need to talk about this more. The art, the art. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. I, I thought it was interesting is the word I would use. <laughs> um, well, there were just some weird moments of like, I don't know, character portrayal. Especially, I guess because the only character that I'm used to is Babs. I will say that sometimes she looks like Babs and sometimes she does not. And I I can't really put my finger on kind of how to describe this art style well it's designed to look very ordinary these are supposed to look like ordinary people they're not gorgeous right they just look like regular people and it's interesting because it's tom sutton and mark buckingham both are pretty good artists mark and mark buckingham's an amazing artist as Mm -hmm. the inker so i guess i put more of the fault on sutton just based on what i've seen buckingham ink over the years Mm-hmm. But it, it is the the art is very inconsistent. Like the first issue starts off the, when the when the black op van comes in and everything mm-hmm. it starts off really strong, right? It's like wow! And then as this issue progresses, clearly he was either running out of time or drawing pages quicker or just lost sense of some of detail. And some of the faces start to get off and things like that. It's even more so in the second issue. Mm-hmm. So the art was it's not anything you're going to read and go I got to find more by this artist. You're, you're yeah. coming to this one for the story. But yeah, I agree with that. Um, it's funny. I was flipping through this the second issue as well, and it seems like there are light moments with the arc, and then there's sort of like gritty, gritty moments, like something you'd see with Frank Miller drawing or something like that. Um, but I was looking at uh, Jane Chandler, and she reminds me of uh, Hetty Lang on uh, NCIS Los Angeles, or if you don't watch that, The Incredibles. Mm-hmm. And uh, what was that? The little, the little lady um, the designer. Right. I know who you're talking about, but I can't come up with it. Okay. Edna Mole. Edna, yeah. She kind of looks like her. Yes, things are going quite well, quite well. My God, no complaints. But, you know, it, it is uh, not the same. Not the same at all. Weren't you just in the news, some show in Prague, Prague? Milan, darling. Milan. Supermodels. Ha! Nothing super about them. Spoiled, stupid little stick figures with poofy lips who think only about themselves. I used to design for gods. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, yeah. So my last thing before asking if, you know, you would continue reading Hacker Files is the, the loneliness of Babs, which is something that I think was focused on, especially, well, throughout, I would say. But then at the very end, I think, was very heartbreaking, seeing that final scene with her. And also when she said before that computers are her life. Which really seems like now Babs is the Oracle identity. Uh, mm-hmm. But what did you think about this particular characterization of her? Well, it's it is heartbreaking because it, first of all, she starts off in a sad place. Mm-hmm. She starts off unable to sort of control her life. She's at the whim of 
mechanical devices around her, such as an elevator, things like that. Mm-hmm. Her life is very, very sad. Then it's violated. Mm-hmm. You know, her, her private sanctum is violated. Her computers are violated. So then at the end, she's rebuilding her life, but she's clearly nervous and scared. And so it's, she's definitely, I feel like, a victim in the story. Not not in such a way like it was inappropriate. I mean, right. it, because, I mean, it, you're dealing with you know people that were breaking the law by using their computers, which she does mm-hmm. on a regular basis. You know, she should be investigated, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. But... um I felt very. I guess I was. It was very. Sad, I was saddened for her. And there mm-hmm. was a moment of joy that she had a friend, someone online that oh, knew her real identity. So it, they tried to bring it at the end on an up note. Mm-hmm. But I think there was so much sadness for you were feeling for for Babs that I don't know it. It really carried it all the way through. So when she talks about she she would feel if she stayed in her previous apartment, she would feel like she was in a glass house. Uh, what do you take that to mean? Well, you said it earlier. I, I think her, since her house had been invaded. Okay, I yeah, wondered. I think if that's, that's. I think that. I think you're right. I hadn't okay. put that together on my own, but now that you know, as you point that out, yeah, that had to be what it was. Okay. Yeah, I, I feel like now there's such a difference, and I don't know if how much people realize this, but there is such a difference between Barbara Gordon as Batgirl and Barbara Gordon as Oracle, and and there's a fun image that uh, Dustin Nguyen drew. I believe it was this Nguyen in the, the Batgirl comic with Brian Q. Miller. And it's, you know, Stephanie Brown. She's fun. So she always had these explanations of who these people are. And it's a very simple drawing. It's actually on the, the Batgirl, the Oracle Facebook page uh, as the, the banner. But it's Batgirl as this very happy and, and you know, uh, optimistic person. And then it shows Oracle and kind of a, a grumpy person. Mm-hmm. And not saying that Oracle is always grumpy, but I think certainly, you know, the killing joke really changed her in many ways. And I think one of them is certainly her personality. And it seems like it's safer for her to be in this computer world. But it's also, so I feel like this loneliness is because she's only interacting with people online. But I also wonder if she misses being Batgirl because of all the heroes and physical people that she got to interact with as well. Well, that, and she could handle the problem herself. Mm-hmm. Now she has to rely on everyone else to handle the problem. That's very true. Yeah. And I, th- I think as time goes by, she, she becomes fine with that role. Mm-hmm. But in the early days, I think it had to be frustrating as heck because, you know, here she would used to go out and kick their butt, and now she has to sit there and wait for someone else and hope that she doesn't get them killed. Yeah, very true. It, it's a bummer because you don't see her. I mean, we will later on, you know, in her history. But right now, not many people have been visiting her, so it's, it's a little sad. And then whenever her father calls, it's like a very short conversation, and she's got to do work. So it's just she doesn't have relationships with people outside of the online. It seems keyboard is, is the way sad. she communicates with the world. Yeah. So my big question here is, would you, and I guess you answered it, but would you continue reading Hacker Files after this? Yeah, if I can get my hands on them, I would read them. All 12 of them, yeah. yeah. I, I think I would also be interested in doing that as well. And I joked about it because I think I asked you before I came on here, I said, do you think I should probably read this whole series in order to cover these two issues? And you said, no, don't, don't worry about it. Just do this. Because I, I had started Suicide Squad off kind of in the middle and then I was only, you know, following Bats' appearances, but then I thought, this is too hard because there's so many storylines that you don't catch up with. So it's hard sometimes to hop around. But in this case, I think we, we were able to read a story that really encapsulated the entire series, gave you an idea of it, and I, I would also agree that it, it, it piqued my interest. How, how should we rate this? Should they be hackers? 
Out of ten hackers, out of ten what? What do you think? Um, hacks. Hacks. Okay. Out of yeah. ten hacks, how many? How, how would you grade this? We're grading each individual issue or them together? Uh, just the story together. How okay. About that? I would give it eight hacks. I am. Uh, wh- wow. I think we can be friends. I'm going to give it eight hacks as well. You're just copying me because you know <laughs> I'm cool. <laughs> That's true. Oh, boy. Thank you uh, for, for reading this with me. Thank you for asking me to. I'm really glad that I did. Yeah, me too. So I also have to say, I'm going to share one of your deep, dark secrets. Oh, no. In, in order to also thank you for this. I found out recently, friends, listeners, that Shag despises <laughs> reviewing issues. <laughs> I had no idea. It takes it takes me coming on his show to find this out, even though he was on my show for at least three different times. But he just does. This is not what he likes to do. Uh, well, let's so, be specific. I don't mind reviewing issues. I hate recapping. Recapping. Issues. Recapping. Yeah. So this I is why it's a segue. So I'm appreciative that. And see, I only give you one issue, right? I made you do more work for your show. Sixty-four for page show, issue, by the way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's awful. You made me feel bad even though I didn't than, think I'd give you a lot of work. More than two hacker issues put together. <laughs> well, uh, maybe I wasn't sly enough about it. Okay, so anyways, the the hater of the – you know, I did Facebook you and I said don't spend too much time on it. So whatever you did is kind of your fault. <laughs> you can Facebook me anytime. <laughs> Oh, my heavens. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so what are we going to talk about now and finally? All right. We're going to talk about Detective Comics Annual number 5 from 1992. We're actually going to go back in time a little bit. This takes place prior to Hacker Files because apparently uh, Stella can't be bothered to look things up in chronological order. Because uh, even though this is the annual, uh, it just doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't tell you a cover date. Well, go to Mike's Amazing World of DC, of DC Comics, and it tells you the on-sale date was June 9th, 1992. Before I get into the annual, I've got to frame it a little bit. And we'll talk more about the framing on the back end, too. But this is part of a major summer-length crossover for 1992 called Eclipso, the Darkness Within. Oh, yeah. Those of you who are of a certain age just went, oh, gosh. And those of you who are a younger age just went, huh, what's that? So Eclipso, the Darkness Within was a summer-long thing where – have you heard of the character of Eclipso? I have. Okay. You know, he's the goddess of god of vengeance, you know, the god, things like that. Prior to this storyline, he... Loring is what I think about. Oh, God, my stomach just nodded. Oh. <laughs> anyway, um, and that is not a comment on identity crisis. That's a comment on what came after identity crisis. Oh, I know, I know. So prior to this, prior to this Eclipse of Darkness Within, Eclipse was just kind of a goofy supervillain. He was this guy who came out with eclipses and things like that, and he had a black diamond. It was his, his power gem, and he'd zap people, and he was the evil sort of Mr. Hyde version of this guy named Bruce Gordon, and he'd been around since the 60s. He had his own series, actually. He was a antagonist character but had his own ongoing series. <laughs> anyway, he had been kind of a joke. He looked like a joke. So they decided to revamp, and they brought in Bart Sears, who was one of the hottest artists at DC at the time. Really phenomenal artist. Had done Justice League Europe, had done a number of things, and just was blowing everybody away with his art. And so he revamped artistically the look of Eclipso, and he looks just totally, totally awesome. I mean, very 90s, though. And the writing at the time, they, they revamped him to be, as I mentioned, the god of vengeance. And so the way it works out at this point is that many, 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 many years ago, they had captured this evil spirit of Eclipso in this giant black 
gem. Looks like a giant black diamond. Somewhere along the line, someone found it and broke it down into a thousand tiny little black diamonds, and they had been spread out across the world. And in this crossover, various people, various super people, were getting their hands on these black diamonds, and either them or someone they knew were being taken possessed by Eclipso. And in the storyline, a lot of the superheroes that you know and, and come to love become possessed by Eclipso and become bad guys during the storyline. So it may be a Superman annual, and Superman's battling something, 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 whatever. He ends up with one of these black diamonds. He has some evil thoughts or some angry thoughts. Anger comes into play where he's angry about something, and suddenly he's possessed by Eclipso, and usually the story would end at that point. Mm. And they'd say, see, Eclipso, the darkness within number two. Because mm. the way they framed it was at the beginning of the summer, Eclipso, the darkness within number one came out, then all these annuals, and then Eclipso, the darkness within number two closed it out. All told, it was a 20-part story. Yeah. So two issues, and then smacked in between the two issues were 18 annuals. Yes, I bought them all. What Eclipse of Darkness Within is known for, most of all, is a cover gimmick. <laughs> Issue number one actually came with this plastic black diamond gem glued to the cover of the comic. Whoa. Yeah, so it stuck up a good, I don't know, quarter inch or something like that. And it was a little black gemstone, and it was a close-up of Eclipse's face as he's holding the gem. And the thing about this comic that everyone will remember is, A, they, they overprinted the heck out of it, so you could find these things at 50 cent pins pretty quickly. And B, when you bought it and put it in your comic collection, whatever comic was in front of it got a big old dent in it. Oh, yeah, From I the see gemstone. That. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right, that's a lot of backstory that you don't care about. I can tell you're pushing me along. Well, I do. No, no. I, I That was very interesting. I'm not bored, Jacob. I'm not bored. Um, she's, she's texting Donovan. No, I wasn't. But I was. I, no. My question was, what poor sap had to put all those diamonds on the thing? Um, a poor sap called a machine, probably. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I saw the life inside. Sure, they just programmed a machine to do it, but because I mean, at that point, they probably printed like I don't know, a hundred thousand copies of this thing. It was, yeah. it was very prolific. It was a huge, huge thing. It, it sold like crazy. Uh, not as big as Turok, okay. but it predated Turok. You know, who knows? This, this may have played a role in popularizing the cover gimmicks that led to Turok. Mm. Nice call out to uh, Professor Allen's quarter bin show there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's cover the credit. Let's cover this uh, thing. And the cover <laughs> is by Sam Keith who wasn't really doing a lot of work for DC, but he was a very popular artist in the 90s. He'd done a bunch of stuff for Marvel. He was doing stuff for Image. Why'd you gasp? Because it all comes together for me now. I was trying you, to figure out, like, did you read the pit? style. No, but he did do Through the Looking Glass. Okay, I'll trust you. Which is, all right. yeah, uh, which was a Batman focused on the Mad Hatter. But no, I was trying to figure out this art style. I'm like, it looks so familiar. Who is this? There we go. You know, I said the pit. I didn't mean the pit. I'm sorry. He did the Max, which actually went on to be a, a MTV animated cartoon for a little while. So that's what he became famous for was this comic he did called the Max. Oh, so, okay. Yep. Uh, 
So this particular comic, even though Sam Keith did the cover, he did nothing inside. Um, but it was this comic was written by Alan Grant and John, John Wagner, pencils by Tom Mandrake, inks by Tom Mandrake, Jander Sima, and Rick Magyar, and colors by Adrian Roy. And the story really focuses around a couple of different characters, primarily the Joker and Scarface. Scarface was a villain from D- from the Batman universe, had was only been around for a few years at this point, but he did make his way into the, into the Batman animated series, mm-hmm. so he was on his way to being very well known. So, sixty-four page annual, repeat sixty-four pages. You didn't have. To I, was, I was asked to recap. Here we go. Cover price is two dollars and fifty cents. So, as the story opens. Uh, it's by the way, it's all the, the art is gorgeous because it's by Tom Mandrake, and I love me some Tom Mandrake. So, woohoo! I actually this is pleasant. So the opening is at the Ven- Ventriloquist Club. This is a bar slash you know interna- entertainment place, and it's having its grand reopening. And on stage, doing their sort of stand up is the puppet Scarface and the Ventriloquist because they are supposedly going straight. They've opened this club and they've invited all the gangsters in town to come. So the, the, the audience is packed full of these mobsters, and Scar, as they do this sort of uh, stand-up routine at, on the stage, it's really mostly just Scarface insulting various mobsters in the audience. And these mobsters start to get pretty ticked off. They get offended. So Scarface apologizes, buys drinks for everyone. Well, it turns out this whole thing's a racket. Scarface is not going straight. What he's done is he's bugged every single one of these tables, and he has a team of folks sort of uh, think of like a henchman call center, mm-hmm. are listening in on all the tables. They get wind of an old robbery by Joker's gang that happened many years ago. Supposedly, during this robbery, Joker stashed $25 million that was never found, and Joker's the only one who knows where it's hidden. So Scarface decides it's time to break the Joker out of Arkham Asylum to lead them to the money, and that's exactly what Scarface and his henchmen do. Joker then leads Scarface on a merry search all over town looking for this money without ever really helping him find it. Meanwhile, Batman foils a robbery of some ancient Egyptian relics. During the robbery, some jewelry, some decorations fall off the relics. Batman recovers a black diamond, which we just talked about. He studies it in the Batcave, and it it defies study, really. But it seems as if there's almost something alive inside the diamond. Well, as we said, that's the evil essence of the Clipso inside these diamonds. Then, Commissioner, this is where... It becomes relevant to this show. Mm-hmm. Commissioner Gordon calls his daughter Barbara to check in on her, and he's clearly racked with guilt because it is, as you mentioned earlier, it's the anniversary. They don't say which anniversary. You know, in real world time, it was four years. Mm, okay, but, so yeah, maybe it was. Not but either. it's you know, in compressed comic book time, you got to assume it's probably less than that. Mm-hmm. But either way, it's the anniversary, right. whatever that means, right. of her being crippled by the Joker. So Gordon is feeling very angry, he's feeling guilty, and he's feeling helpless. Well, Barbara, on the other hand, is basically telling him he needs to move on, because she has. So Gordon uh, is sitting there, you know, really bothered by this after he gets off the phone. He's imagining him. By the way, that's all you're going to get of Barbara, the whole time. We're done there. So Gordon imagines himself actually killing the Joker. Around this time, Dr. Bruce Gordon comes to see him. I mentioned him earlier. He was in the Eclipso um, comic book. Mm -hmm. Bruce Gordon explains to Commissioner Gordon, that there are these black diamonds in Gotham, and he needs to recover them. Eclipso, again, who's a godlike creature of evil and immense power, his life essence is trapped inside these black diamonds, and there's a thousand of them. Batman admits to having recovered one of them, and they realize there's two more in the police evidence locker. So about this time, Gordon is also informed that the Joker has escaped from Arkham Asylum. Commissioner Gordon goes to recover the black diamonds from the evidence locker. While he's doing this, he's thinking some really dark thoughts about the Joker. Well, this activates the Eclipso crystals, and this Gordon collapses, and these black fumes start pouring out of all of his orifices. And these fumes coalesce into this enormous Eclipso-like monster. 
Now, this is kind of different than the other Eclipso crossovers. In most cases, the person was just taken over and became an agent of Eclipso. In this case, it actually produces this Eclipso monster. So the Eclipso monster um, then heads for where Joker's uh, last location had been reported. The monster's tearing apart this warehouse, searching for the Joker, intent on killing him. Batman shows up and actually fights to save the Joker from the Eclipso monster. Because regardless of how evil the Joker is, neither Batman nor Commissioner Gordon can really condemn him to death. They don't feel like that, that they can do that. So Batman hurts the beast with, <laughs> check it out, some toy lightsabers because they are solar-powered, and apparently sunlight actually dispels eclipses. That's Bruce Gordon's number one weapon is sunlight. <clears throat> Jim Gordon feels responsible for the creation of Eclipso because, you know, his dark thoughts were what brought it to life. So Gordon shows up on the scene, and he actually drives a car directly into the Eclipso monster. He bails out of the car at the last second, and the car explodes, taking the creature with it. I don't really understand how that works, but it does. In the end, uh, Scarface is taken back into custody, and yet the Joker escapes. And we're told this is to be continued in Robin Annual Number 1. Which, by the way, the cover to Robin Annual Number 1 and the cover to Batman uh, Annual are also done by Keith, uh, by Sam Keith. Oh. Interesting. Yep. So, And this turns out this is the fourth part of this major crossover. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we mentioned, we've got another, you know, all the way up to Part 20 in this thing. That's crazy. Now, we've mentioned Eclipso, The Darkness Within on this show before. Mm-hmm. Do you remember Stella? I don't. Really? Is that how you're going to play it? You, I can see how clearly you listen to me. You remember my cat's name, I do. but you can't remember what we talked about when we talked about the death of Starman. Oh. Yeah. My beloved Will Payton, yeah. Starman, dies in Eclipso, The Darkness Within, issue two. Oh, dear. Broke my heart. Broke my heart. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can feel your sympathy. And I just read someone passing on the Starman mantle in Zero Hour. So that was a different Starman? Yep. Okay. Actually, you know who that was? Uh, That was the Starman we read about. Okay. Remember, we read Starman with Will Payton, and there was also the original Starman's son was in that. Mm -hmm. And he was being hit like a mental whammy on him by Nimbus. Well, that that Starman, the original Starman's son, is the one who takes over for about five minutes. Gotcha. And then you get into the good one, right? The one that you recommended? Yes, exactly. I have yet to read it. However, I am reading Ms. Marvel, which you recommended. I'm reading that. You did what? I'm reading Ms. Marvel by Brian Reed, which you recommended. Awesome. And enjoying it? I am, actually. Yeah, really liking it. It's totally cool. And you know what? I I don't think it gets the credit it deserves, all because it's written by a guy. I I didn't realize, but that, that may be true. Yeah. Um, yeah, because she became a breakout character all of a sudden once she was written by a girl. Yeah, Kelly Sue DeConnick. Yeah. Right, and it's like, what's the difference? I mean, sure. maybe people. I'm sure there's a lot. Sure. It could. I mean, there's a lot of cheesecake in the art. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah. But uh, and maybe that's it. Maybe the cheesecake factor is offending, or maybe you know people could argue the Kelly Sue issues are written better. Maybe mm-hmm. I don't know, but I th- I think the Brian Reed's make very solid mm-hmm. action adventures, and I don't think she's treated poorly. Mm-hmm. And I like we've we've gotten off topic, but I do have to say that one thing that <laughs> don't we always. I know I, I one thing that I like about Brian Reed's right now I'm I'm in the I just did the Civil War arc. Um, so I'm in her next one, which looks like she'll be binary for a short. I don't know. I, we'll all find out. But it, it seems like it's it's Earth based, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas something that bothered me about Kelly Sue DeConnick's run is that like she was continually in outer space, and mm-hmm. I mean she had people that she's interacting with, but you know the people that she was close to, like 
you know, maybe Spider Woman or, or other people she wasn't really, and she was dating Brody, but, you know, she wasn't really interacting with him, and then there was sort of a mind wipe. So there are some disappointing things that happened where she lost her memory and the space hmm. thing. Sometimes space, I think, is too big, and I want it to just be relegated to certain characters, like Guardians of the Galaxy. Sure, they should be in space, but I kind of wanted her to be on Earth. Where Brian Reed's right now, you know, she is on Earth, and she is interacting uh, with these different people. Like, she just had a battle royale with Rogue and another Ms. Marvel from another Earth. That was interesting. But anyways, how did we get on that? <laughs> oh, I guess that I listened to you. Sometimes, okay. sometimes. I have to say that let's talk about Oracle first, and then we'll talk about the rest of it, because Oracle is, is such a short appearance. I feel like she lies. She is lying in here, and you'll have to tell me what you think about it as well. But her quote is, I've done my best to put it behind me, and so should you. You know, and she's, you know, what happened, happened, it's over. I just think it's a lie. It's believable, I think. If you look at this issue in a vacuum and not think about anything else, I think it's believable. But just looking at, you know, what happened in Hacker Files, even though it may happen after this, this stuff that happens in Suicide Squad where she still sort of thinks about it, I don't think she's over it. What do you think? Yes, I, I agree I agree completely. So I was, what I was originally wondering is whether you were going to say that it's not a good representation of her or whether she's lying. Uh, I'm glad you were specific about that because I think she's – I think it's a good representation of her mm-hmm. because I think she would lie to her dad. Yeah. I think she would absolutely lie to her dad about this because she knows how terrible he feels mm-hmm. and she has always protected him. Mm-hmm. She's, I mean it's, it's funny. you know, The dad usually protects the daughter, right. but in the history of their relationship, she's always protecting her dad. Mm-hmm. And that's what she's doing here because, I mean, he feels guilty. It's, he feels like it's his fault. Right. And you know what? It is. Mm-hmm. Joker didn't shoot her because she was back mm-hmm. Joker shot her because she was connected to Gordon. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's mentioned uh, later on in Ostrander's run uh, when she's talking to a psychiatrist that because he wanted to be accessible to the community, he did not have guards stationed outside of his door. That's mm. what it was. But no, I always argue with, and Don and Josh, see, maybe you can be on my side for this. Don and Josh say that, I mean, it's ridiculous to even consider the Joker finding him, of course he would. But I just wonder, like, how did he know where to go? Guards is one thing, his address is another thing. But, but yeah, so the, there is, I, I wouldn't say conflict, but there is, you know, some, some problems she may have deep down, or maybe she blames him slightly. But you're absolutely correct about that. But I do think that she's lying. Uh, and it's interesting because one of the other times you were on actually to talk about Starman, we did Batman 451, which was one of the first reappearances of Joker. And if right. you remember, Jim calls her and says, I just want you to know that Joker is out. And, you know, they talk about that. So it's like a similar, it's whenever the Joker pops up, it seems like we're going to have this phone call, which is very interesting that these two are forever tied in the Joker's history, it seems. Well, I hope he calls her like when Joker's not around. Yeah, I hope so, too. But right like now it's not have- seen. I like to think they have like Sunday afternoon calls oh, or something like that. I hope so. It seems or like they have, they, dinner have to, they have dinner together once a week or something. Oh, yeah. Yes. So now overall thoughts, I guess, on this particular story. I lived it. Okay. I, I was managing a comic book store at the time, so I was all in on this. Mm-hmm. You know, Part of it from the aspect of I had to sell it, so I had <laughs> to think positively about it or talk positively about it. 
Uh, I, have I ever told you the stories like working in the comic book store about well, I, how we had to say something positive I about every book? Remember? Well, I only know it because I listened to you on Professor Allen's show. Oh, okay. And um, on the Turok episode, and you had mentioned something about. It. So even like it's uh, if it's a you said if it's an extremely crappy story, you just say like, "Well, that cover is great." <laughs> you had yeah. to end with something positive. And I mean, I was the one who came up with that policy. So I mean, it's not like it was uh, the boss being mean. Mm-hmm. It was like, yeah, you never want to sell something to somebody and make them feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. That happened to me when I was a kid at that store. And the, the guy was buying my stuff. I had a stack of like 10 copies. And he's literally, as he's ringing up, he's bringing it up and setting it down going, crap, crap, crap. Oh, this is a good comic. <laughs> crap, crap. And I'm like, I felt terrible about my purchases, you know? And so I instituted a policy of, you know, you got to say something nice about every comic yourself. So again, you're right. If it was a, if it was like young blood, you know, you, the best you might come up with is like the coloring in this book is really good. Or the tiny feet are cute. Right. Exactly. You'd find something positive to say. Mm-hmm. So, um, at this point though, I was, I was really excited about this crossover. I, I, I thought the gems on the covers were cool. I was into the, you know, seeing where it was going and what was going to happen this summer. The the only disappointing fact was at the end that my buddy Starman died. So here's a, I was enjoying it. Oh well, I'm glad. So I when I looked, I thought this was strange. So when I looked this up and I was looking at this crossover, which let me pull it up now, and I thought, oh my goodness, twenty parts. That's very overwhelming. And they're all in big issues. They're all in annuals, really. Yeah. yeah. Um. So my question was, what do you think as a as a a person who ha- had lived it? Would it have been better served as a backup, like a little backup to each of these annuals, not necessarily interacting with the characters, and then have something like really explode and have an Eclipso solo issue that sort of wraps everything up? Or is this really the best way that they did it? The answer is really neither. Okay. Um, doing backup, the whole goal of it is to sell issues. Mm-hmm. That's the whole reason to do the crossover. And doing it as backups wasn't going to sell it. They, they had to be the lead story. So doing it as a backup wouldn't, wouldn't have sold the comics. So therefore, you're, the only thing you could really do is make it all the way in. So what would have probably been better would have simply just been like a five-issue miniseries and just be done with okay. it rather than a 20-part yeah. you know, crossover where the annuals are a higher price than the normal comics. So, I mean, it's a serious financial investment. I mean, at this point in the 90s, they were really, really milking the crossover too far. Mm-hmm. Um, you weren't getting the value out of the pieces either. They were just like, slap a, slap a logo on it. Sure, let's do it. It wasn't until years later that they would, you know, I think Marvel did a pretty good job perfecting the, the way to do the crossover where you felt like you got something out of every issue. Mm-hmm. Um, people could say what they want about Civil War, and people can say what they want about Brian Michael Bendis' uh, Civil War Avengers issues. I thought they really added a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't move the Civil War story forward. It showed you what the characters were up to. It was like, wow, this is the way to fit into a crossover because I can read the Avengers issue by itself or I can read Civil War by itself. Mm-hmm. I don't need both to understand what's happening, and it just works and it's enjoyable. Same thing with Amazing Spider-Man during Civil War. I thought it was really well done. Absolutely. You know what? You just got me super excited, and I was thinking to myself, man, would there be an opportunity to talk about Civil War? Civil War was the thing that got me back into like collecting Marvel comics. It was, Me too. it was Infinite Crisis and it was Civil War. And I was just astounded with just that amazing story. And I started getting, because I 
throughout reading those, I sort of attached myself to specific characters, and then from there I went and got those crosses. Like, Spider-Man was one of them that I got. Fantastic Four was another one, because I thought there was a lot of deep stuff going on there, because that family was split, which I thought was intense. One of my favorite tie-ins, however, was Frontline. I think oh, that's yeah. probably, that was good. yeah, I, I just thought following Ben Urich and all that was probably one of the, the best things I've, I've, I've ever read. The subsequent frontline stories no, and other crossovers weren't as good, but the one in Civil War was good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which I really recommend there. Paul Jenkins wrote that, I think. I can't recall. I just remember it being amazing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. We should talk about crossovers, uh, maybe later after this, but, I always ask myself about annuals because I feel like annuals need to serve a specific purpose. They're special at, you know, lots of pages, right? For a shag to recap, you're paying extra money. So it should, it should really have an impact. So do you think that this served its purpose? No. Okay. You know, it's also astounding is that this is only the fifth annual in detective comics history. Mm, yeah, right. In 1992. So it's been around since what? 19, you know, 37 or whatever it was. Um, Detective Comics has been around a long time. So it's pretty shocking that this is only the fifth annual. And no, it doesn't serve that sort of purpose. And annual, like you said, an annual should be a big event. It should be a celebration of either the year prior. I mean, I've seen a couple different ways the annual's done one. One is a celebration of the year prior, maybe even concludes a major storyline like they would do with like New Teen Titans, the Judas Contract. You know, the story built and built and built in the issues and finished up in the annual. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Fury of Firestorm. They did that the first annual number one. That was really well done. That's a great way to handle annual. Another one is like Blue Devils annual number one, which was the summer fun annual. It was just a hoot. The whole issue was a blast. It was a bunch of a bunch of short stories, like or like one main short story and little bits of other stuff. Like they had games and stuff in there. I mean, just it, they made the annual fun. It was a big party, and that's what an annual should feel like. It should feel like a celebration of what you're reading rather than part. You know, one you know, part four of a twenty-part crossover. Right. You know, Atlantis Attacks did this, uh, Bloodlines did this, uh, Armageddon two thousand one did this. So oh, it's, no, uh, that one. Oh yeah. We talked about that. I remember. Yes, we did. I, you know, if I think about this book, if I were to take out a clip, so I think maybe it'd be much better. I think that was just what sort of muddied it for me. Uh, it was just a strange combination of villains. I, I liked the Scarface story that he was tapping his own place and it would steal other crooks' uh, stuff. I thought that was good. But then it just kept getting bigger. It was Scarface, and then we added Joker, and then we added Eclipso, and it just seemed like too much was going on uh, for the annual sake and, of course, for the Eclipso crossover sake. I, I don't know that I agree there. Like oh. the story itself, I felt was pretty solid. Like if you're if if you're going to bring the Eclipso angle in, mm-hmm. okay, you, you accept. Let's just accept that and not kvetch about it. Let's just say okay, it's in the story. Well, Gordon's the one with the most anger, the most rage, Absolutely. and you could have used Batman. And I think they do. I think Batman does get uh, fall to the, the the Eclipso stuff in the Batman annual, if I remember right. But if you're going to have Gordon do it over the, jo- I mean, it would be over the Joker. It'd be over what happened to his daughter. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. So you've got to have Joker in the story. Now Scarface, maybe that was the piece too much. However, I found him as the most interesting character in the book. Right. I really dug him. I, I, you know, so having the whole idea of the Gordon Eclipso creature going after the Joker actually works really well. So it, it 
it almost seems like it would have been better served as two separate stories then. Maybe that's what the way it could have mm-hmm. gone. They could have had the Scarface story, and they could and then they could have had the Joker Eclipso story. It would have been maybe a better way to go because all the elements work. And but yeah. now that I'm now that I'm actually saying it out loud, I, I might unfortunately have to agree with you a bit. Uh, it was in maybe a different a, order. A you think that Eclipso should be with with Joker, and I think that maybe Joker and Scarface could work. Though I'm su- I'm just surprised Joker took the hits that. That Scar- I mean, I was reading those scenes, and, and Scarface is just sort of pounding on Joker and, you know, demanding the the information. I just thought, man, I don't think Joker would take this, but here we go. Yeah. But it was, you know, it was nice that the Joker never gave up where the money was. It's true. But it, was cl- it was clearly obvious he was never going to do that. Yeah. So that was nice to see the Scarface get played. Absolutely. Uh, it took me a little bit. I think he... Um, I was reading him in the Nightfall trilogy. Scarface is one of the people. Because I remember that Arnold has like a sock at one point and then maybe a frog until he finds Scarface again. But I can't remember if it's Nightfall, Night's Quest, or Night's End. Oh, is, is, uh, is Arnold a ventriloquist name? Yeah. Arnold okay. Wesker, I believe is okay. his name. Uh, but anyway, so it, it took me a little bit when I was reading him there to get that the G's are actually B's. Yeah. And so here I had to like redo that again, uh, which is interesting because I imagine it's because of Arnold's, you know, struggle to actually pronounce it. But also because the scars over his nose, it's almost like he does have like a nasal issue. So it's kind of well, it's, interesting. it's supposed to also sound a little bit like, you know, um, like a famous B movie gangster, okay. you know, yeah. or. Uh, Cagney, yeah. you know, it's supposed to sound like a little bit like Cagney's, you know, hey, you, 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 <laughs> you dirty rat, you, you dirty rat. rat, yeah. I remember that from uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, goodness. <laughs> you oh, good, goodness. my brother, you dirty rat. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I think. Heroes and a half show. I know, right? Hey, I got another one. <laughs> oh, this is totally oh, cool. No. Okay. Not Cagney. <laughs> You dirty rat! You killed my brother! You dirty rat! Mm. My last thing is just that Dr. Bruce Gordon, which I was unaware of, I had to uh, look him up and and see what this is or who he was because I thought to myself, what a ridiculous name! Especially because he's taking place in Batman. You've got it's it's like the hybrid child, the love oh child of gosh. Bruce Wayne and Jim Gordon. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. I thought, That's hilarious. Can't you come up with a better name? But he probably – that wasn't his first appearance, was it? Hi, I'm Dick Drake. Yes, that's what I'm saying. What? Uh, where did he first appear? What was the book he first appeared in? In the 1960s. Do you so, know what the book was? Um, I don't know if Eclipse started I – don't, I don't think Eclipse started in his own series. I think okay. Eclipse would have started in um, – Probably one of those like tales to mystery type thing or something gotcha. like that. I'll have to I'll have to look that up. But uh, I mean, he's been around forever. Yeah, I just well, I assumed he didn't appear in a uh, in a Batman book. So the Bruce Gordon, no. but just him being in here, I think is weird. Being House Bruce of Gordon. Secrets number sixty one, August nineteen sixty three, created by Bob Zaney Haney. Look at you, Bob. <laughs> oh dear. Did he pop up? Does um Bruce? Gordon pop up on who's who? Uh, Eclipso did. Okay, so, but not yeah. okay. Well, but Eclipso is just his, you know, sort of Doctor Hyde. All right. in here, they're two separate entities. Uh-huh. But in the original Eclipso stories, he was simply the uh, the like the Mister Hyde kind of personality. He would change back and forth. Mm-hmm. 
So he showed up in the original Who's Who as Eclipso, gotcha. and then uh, later on, as you get into the later editions of Eclipso, I mean of Who's Who, I'm pretty sure you get a, a full page, like Bart Sears kind of Eclipso page. Okay. Now, Eclipso had an ongoing series after this, too, where he was, you know, the god of vengeance and other heroes would try and hunt him down. And, and DC actually cleaned house and murdered a ton of their sort of B-list or D-list heroes they didn't really want to use anymore. Wow. Eclipso just slaughtered them, like uh, the female wildcat from Infinity, Inc. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, jeez. I can't remember. There's, there's a ton of folks that just got taken out. Well, I guess that's the way to do it. Yeah. Well, what would you give this annual out of uh, 10 bats? Uh, I don't get to do 10 eclipses. Oh, you could have 10 eclipses or 10, um, what are those stones called? Uh, Black diamonds. Black diamonds. There, that's it. How many black diamonds would I give it? Okay. As an eclipso story, I would probably give it eight black diamonds. Eight black diamonds. Yeah. As a a Batman Detective Comics annual, probably only going to get about four or five. Is it called the Heart of Darkness? Uh, the the Black Diamond is called the Heart of Darkness. Yes. Okay, but we'll just call it the Black Diamond. Yeah. As uh, I I just I wasn't as enthused with this. I'm going to give it six out of ten Black Diamonds. Mm. I'm afraid. I I do like not the art? like it as much as you. I'm sorry. Do you like the artwork? Did I like the art? I did like the art. Yes. Good. I like Tom Mandrake quite a bit. He drew Firestorm for a couple years. Oh. He's a great artist. He drew the – actually, Tom Mandrake and John Ostringer actually are – and I realize Ostringer didn't write this, but Tom Mandrake and Ostringer have a long history of working together. Mm-hmm. They worked on Grimjack together. They did Firestorm together. They did the Spectre together. They did uh, the Martian Manhunter series together. Mm-hmm. Now they're doing the Kronos the graphic novel thing together mm-hmm. about the vampires. So they, they've been working together a long time. Love Tom Mandrake. Mm-hmm. Great stuff. Yeah. Well, as my final question, actually, you kind of brought it up. Look, we're under three hours. What do you? What What are your thoughts on crossovers and tie-ins and things like that? Do you have any thoughts on them, gimmicks and things like that? I'm a sucker for them. Mm-hmm. I love a good one. I hate a bad one. But you, when you're writing it, I guess you never know when you're in the middle of it whether it's going to turn out to be a good one or a bad right. one. So you can't really blame somebody. They put their effort into it. But uh, crossovers, honestly, a lot of times you remember the crossovers better than you remember the, the regular issues. You know, you might read 40 issues of a comic, but a lot of times it's going to be the crossovers from Zero Hour or the crossovers from Eclipso or the crossovers from Bloodlines or whatever it might be that you're going to remember the most. Or Civil War mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, Secret Invasion or whatever oh. the big thing is of the day. Or Final Crisis. <laughs> <laughs> Not a fan of Final Crisis. I wasn't either. <laughs> Not a lot of people were. Um, so do you, if there's an event going on, do you get all the tie-ins if you're invested in the event? I used to. Okay. I used to be very adamant about that. You know, when Legends had, I think, 40 tie-in issues, I got them all. Uh, Millennium, all that stuff. Probably was, oof, I don't know, sometime in the, the early 2000s, I finally said, you know what? I think I'm kind of done. <laughs> I'd buy the ones I want, and if they crossed over to the books I was reading, I'd be in for it. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, no. Do you have event fatigue? Does such a thing exist for you? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Okay. It probably hit I, – I first became aware of it in 2005. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, I, I don't want to get into this too much because it sounds like we're going to have a conversation down the line, even though you keep telling me I'm not coming back on your show <laughs> for a while, uh, about 
<laughs> about Civil War, but it was interesting. Well, like, how, 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 this is event fatigue. How it's event is it going to come on this show? It's going to have to come on your show. Oh, you got to come to my show? Well, how oh, am I? Not, no, how you, am you, I stunk, I, you stunk the place up last time. I don't think I can have you back on. Well, how, okay, that's fine. But how am I supposed to work this way into Barbara Gordon? Because when you do Dragon Ball Z episodes, or you know, <laughs> Dragon Ball Z episodes, or when you do the 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 shipping episodes, yeah, this this doesn't fit. Okay, because we can talk about Infinite Crisis too, because they tie together. So here's the thing: everyone seemed to reach a breaking point in 2005. Yeah. It was almost like a point of no return with comic fans. Yeah. Everyone had kind of had enough at that point. And it seems to me, in my experience of talking to people, if you're primarily a DC guy going up to 2005. Infinite Crisis broke you a little bit, and you found yourself, like me, shopping over at Marvel and buying uh, Civil War and going, this is pretty interesting. And then the initiative that came afterwards. It's like, wow, I'm really digging this. And so I was, I was still buying my DCs, but I was getting a lot of passion out of Marvel and was buying – at that point, by the end of it, I was buying more Marvel than I was DC. Whereas a lot of Marvel fans I knew got Civil War, and they had had enough at that point. They had event fatigue, and they felt like Civil War wasn't true to the, to the Marvel Universe, and so they ended up started buying Infinite Crisis. So you got basically got a bunch of, bunch of people with grasses, greener syndrome, yeah. switching teams. And so uh, that's about when it happened for me. It was about That's when I kind of hit event fatigue. Yeah. I feel like we've not had too many – What they've had – what was it? Secret Wars has been coming out now. Just a bit. Yeah, I know. Even though it seems like it's gone on for so long. But I think now the comic companies are a little sneaky. So they're doing these events that are mixed. They're not by a separate issue event. They're all these uh, stories or issues cross over into one another. So they have to, they're sort of making you buy extra issues if you're following this one. So, so, for example, in Marvel, they had a couple crossovers between Guardians of the Galaxy and all-new X-Men. And I was reading those at the same time, but then there'd be something random like, um, oh gosh, Nova, which I don't care for that character. But then I had to go and get it because, you know, it was like Party 11 of 12, so of course I had to go. So, they're tricky about these things, I think, now. Um, I don't know that I'm going to agree. Oh, okay. I, th- I think they, they do some crossovers like that, certainly. But then you get Secret Wars, which That's is true. tons of miniseries. Yeah. You know what? They're all oh, like man. four issues, maybe, yeah. or something like yeah. that. And there was, I don't know, 20 or 30 of them. You know, Convergence, 40 different two-issue miniseries. That's true. You know, the then you, yep, and you look at something like, I'm just going to pick on Spider Island, because I'm actually reading Spider Island right oh, now. Oh, dear. I'm enjoying the hell out of it. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Shag. But see, I'm not a Spider-Man purist. <laughs> okay. To me, you know what it is? It's, it is the summer blockbuster movie uh, is what it is. Okay. It's, it's the popcorn summer blockbuster movie that you don't really need to think too much about. Mm-hmm. You just read it and you go, damn, Humberto Ramos can draw some really hot women. <laughs> Mary Jane is smoking in this oh, comic. Boy. You know, that kind of stuff. But she's not together with Peter, so it's pointless. That's okay. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> he had another girlfriend in there. Yeah, you? Carl. Anyway. Yeah, and so you get those stories where, sure, there's the main storyline in Amazing Spider-Man, but suddenly there's the Spider-Man, you know, Spider-Island Avengers issue you got to buy, and the Spider-Island Hercules issues, and the Spider-Island Cloak and Dagger issues. You know, there's a lot of other stuff they produce that was specifically under that banner. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, I, I think they'll try every kind of crossover. Okay. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'm sick of uh, cover gimmicks. Mm. I'm sick and tired 
of coverage. It's it's really coming. It's it's it seems like every month for DC. Yes, it does. This every month, month is it seems like Looney Tunes. Okay, you get the Looney Tunes. You got a Flash month. You got a Green Lantern month. Yep. You get a Harlequin month. You get you know a WTF month. You get a hologram month. Yeah. You get you know all oh, this apparently nonsense. Denny O'Neill or Neil Adams, one of those people. He's got one coming up. Yes, but it's it's covers of Neil Adams drawn by Neil Adams. Right. Isn't that strange? I'm looking forward to those. <laughs> okay. Because so I well I I just want to see them. I don't want to buy them. Oh, I just yeah. want to see the pictures. I like Neil Adams' artwork. His writing went off the rails several years ago. Oh boy. But his artwork is just what's that? Batman Odyssey. Well, before then, but that's a real good example of it. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to read that. I'm like, what the hell? I had to recap this? it for TBU, and I'm like, I don't know what's going on, but I'll try the best I can. This is impenetrable. <laughs> why is why is Dick Grayson wearing Tim Drake's costume? I don't understand. Yeah. Well, we survived yet another episode together. Somehow. Somehow. It's because we're the dynamic duo. <gasps> that's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, honestly, I'm I'm very appreciative. You know, we joke around, but I'm appreciative of the of the time. I know that you know recapping is not your not your bag, and uh, <laughs> you know I I, tr- I ask you to try these things um, that could be dangerous, right? I'm kind of like one of those sketchy people at a uh, at a frat party that is asking you to try something bad. So, <laughs> but it turned out okay this time. So. Are you telling me you introduced me to funneling or, or shotgunning or something like I that? I don't know what either of those terms mean. Oh, whatever. <laughs> I really don't. You went to college. Yeah, but I didn't go to frat parties. <laughs> it's okay. Neither did I. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I know. What note to end with now? Well, uh, what's your... You blew it, Stella. We were on, we were on a nice path we there. Yeah, we were on a nice... Well, what's Remington doing at this moment? Well, he's actually meowed several times the last oh. couple of minutes, but you were blathering away and couldn't hear him. Did you hear that? No, it was like a cough. No, he's just talking. He's a talker. Did you hear that? Yes, I did. Okay, finally, Remington has appeared on the Backroll <laughs> Orc podcast. I'm so happy he could be my co-host. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know. The bad news is, Shag, I don't know when next you'll appear on the show. Civil War. <laughs> How in the world are we going to argue that into the show? It's just a special randomly? Sure. You know I run a Firestorm and Aquaman podcast, right? Yeah. We talked about Star Wars the other day. Okay. You know why? Because we felt like we wanted it. to, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? We did an episode a while back where we just did uh, old 70s and 80s science fiction shows. We got more feedback for that episode than I think any episode we've ever done. Wow. <laughs> Just pages and pages and pages and pages of people reminiscing about these shows. We usually have like 20 pages of listener feedback anyways. That's true. But this is your show. You can do whatever you want. I and if I don't appear on the Backworld Oracle podcast anytime soon, that's fine. Uh, it'll give Donovan some breathing room. He can come back and listen to the show again. Oh, he can stop crying about all his issues. I mean, as I understand, he's ending his podcast yes. simply because he can't handle the fact that he hasn't been on the show so much and I'm here instead of him. Yeah, I, I tried to console him, but there's really no consoling him. Yeah. So, the only thing that would make it better is if, I don't know, I was on your anniversary show coming up. Oh, well, do you want to read some modern age comics? <laughs> You're trying to figure out how to fit me on there, aren't you? Well, that's how you'd have to come on. Or you could read, uh, you could do a dramatic reading 
of a fan fiction novel. Fan fiction. So, this has been fun. Um, <laughs> can't wait to have you on the Firewater podcast again sometime soon. Sometime soon, in the next two years. Yeah. So, 2016 won't be the year of Shag, huh? Just a one-year gig I had. My contract's up? Well, I, I'm, I was looking at the different... I mean, I've got a random Asriel book coming up. Do you, you read Asriel? I've got Brotherhood of... Oh, we could do Brotherhood of the Bat. Oh, goodness. Have you ever I, heard of this? No. Apparently, it's an Elseworlds-esque thing. I found it. Oh, really? So, I'll put you down here tentatively for <laughs> of the Bat. Let me find some piece of crap that no one wants to talk about and we'll give it to Shag. And uh, something right before it is Underworld Unleashed, Patterns of Fear. You will put my ass down for Underworld Unleashed. (laughs) Or we will have have words. If anyone else does Underworld Unleashed but me, we will have words. Oh, have you heard of that before? Have I heard of it? Have I heard of it? Okay. I lived it. (laughs) You live a lot of things apparently and survive. I managed a comic store from 91 to 96. Okay, so apparently we're doing Underworld Unleashed. We're going to have to find a copy of that. And Brotherhood of the Bat sometime. Okay, sounds like a plan. Yeah. Well, uh, Brotherhood of the Bat, I know, is one of those, uh, what are those called? Deluxe editions? Some, some, some. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, it sold a lot because I've heard of it. Oh, okay. Oh, you have heard of it? No. Oh, Okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Bottom line, yeah. thank you so much for having me on the show, Stella. <laughs> that is the bottom I really line. appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to chat with Absolutely. you. You're an absolute delight. Oh, thank you. Uh, and I don't, I, I don't really mean any of that, but uh, well, I know you've been on a couple times. But where can people find you? Uh, they can find me mostly hanging out at the Circle K mm-hmm. on Saturday nights um, by choice. I'd like to point that out. But uh, over at FirestormFan.com, you can find me on the Firewater Podcast. You can find me. All over the interwebs, but uh, that's probably the easiest way to find me. Search for those two, firestormfan.com and Fire and Water Podcast. And after hearing me on this episode, I think there might be one out of you know 17,000 listeners that want to do that. Mm-hmm. Isn't something usually afoot at the Circle K? Very good. You caught the reference. I'm impressed. See, we can be friends. Now, a motion picture so grand, so magnificent. And so vast, it spans 7,000 years. No way! Yes way! But it starts with Bill. I'm Bill S. Preston! Who was Joan of Arc? And Ted. Noah's wife? We are in danger of flunking most heinously tomorrow. A force from the future. Can we go anywhere we want at any time? You can do anything you want. Is putting history at their fingertips. Let's reach out and touch someone. They're traveling through time. How's it going, royal ugly dudes? Put them in the Iron Maiden. Excellent! Execute them. Bogus. How's it going, dude? And they're making a big impression. Historical babes. Now they're home. Everybody get together remember who your buddy is. To trash the 20th century. We got a live one here. Keanu Reeves. Alex Winter. Napoleon. We're from history. Billy the Kid. Oh my God. Joan of Arc. Sigmund Freud. Tell me about your mother. You a musician? Beethoven. Genghis Khan! Abraham Lincoln. Party on, dudes! Socrates. George Carlin. We're history. 
If you guys are really us, what number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! <gasps> Bill and Ted's Excellent! Excellent! Excellent Adventure. Party on, dude. Uh, yes, as always, I mean, it was fun, and I think uh, I talked more than I normally do on this one. Would you agree? I would agree. Uh, you wouldn't shut up at certain points. Oh, heavens. <laughs> Maybe I should have <laughs> taken a nap before podcasts like I did this time. I'm more awake. That's the problem. End the damn thing, I'm woman. I'm so sorry. Uh, thank you. Well, now I am alone. Shag has gone off to his own Shag Palace. And now I'm going to tackle some listener emails. Mail time. Mail time. News here. Here's the mail. It never fails. It makes me want to wag my tail. When it comes, I want to wail. So we've got a bunch of emails, actually, and some comments on the website. First, from episode 107, we have from Ian Miller. He says, great podcast, and it was nice to hear Donovan again. Very thoughtful and passionate commentary he provides to your usual enthusiasm and intelligence, Stella. I especially appreciated the look back at Nightfall. Maybe one of these days I'll take a look through it. The discussion at background number 44 was fascinating. As someone who hasn't particularly enjoyed the current Burnside run of Barbara's adventures, and didn't like Simone's take on the character very much either, seeing factors that have bothered me come to a head in this issue is kind of fun. Barbara's immaturity, the shallowness and fleetiness of the romantic entanglements, and the difficulty the writers seem to have in writing healthy friendships, Barbara and Frankie's relationship may be touching at times, but it's not very healthy with all the deception and hypocrisy, all sort of come to a climax here. I actually don't mind the Luke-Babs relationship, mostly because I've given up hope for any kind of healthy romantic relationship for Barbara. She's been shipped with Jeremy, Liam, Jason Todd, Dick, Kadir, and now Luke, all of them nothing more than a flutter of emotion and infatuation. Well, the Dick scene in Grace number 12 was significant, but it's annoying that it comes on the heels of so much romantic dithering. But it's of a piece with the relative shallowness and immaturity of Barbara since the Burnside run started, with an important exception in the two-issue arc where Barbara and Jim dealt with him becoming Batman, which was intelligent and touching. I believe I share some of Stella's aversion to casual physical romantic entanglements and characters I like or admire, since those tend to be characters who do a lot of damage to people to whom the relationship isn't as casual. Dick Grayson with Corey, Helena, Barbara, and others is an example of the damage that kind of lifestyle can cause, I believe. Even though Babs in this title is mostly just flirting and making out, it's still not a terribly meaningful way to form connections to other people. Alicia is a sore point for me. As someone who is, shall we say, on the opposite end of the political spectrum as the character, I find her activism irritating, if not outright offensive, especially since she shows so little discernment or maturity in her pursuit of her goals. While I actually really liked Joe's defiance of the Velvet Tiger, the immaturity of both of these characters makes it incredibly hard for me to root for anything connected to it, and I find much more interest in background number 45's promised return of Dick Grayson than the actual wedding, or even the Luke bad state. The Shakespeare Jeopardy round at the end of the podcast was fantastic, and good on you, Donovan, for being a fan of the Bard. Thanks for writing in, Ian. Of course, you know, I, I will disagree with on your points of uh, Burnside. I think, you know, we, we, we've seen what Barbara Gordon in a book could be at the low end. And so I'm very pleased overall with, with how Burnside is. But you and I, I think, fall 
in the in the same realm of of our taste with with how Babs is being dealt relationship wise and and really if if we were to go between her having all these flings or one fling or maybe just focusing on herself I think now I've said this many times before but I feel like now is the time let's just focus on who Barbara Gordon is and figure that out and then maybe have one person but not have all this casual stuff uh, as for her friendships, uh, I agree there. Of course, you know, Dinah, that was a bit of a damaged relationship. Alicia, we haven't really seen very much, but her constantly running out on her during this wedding planning that didn't really seem like it was doing any good, and, and the Frankie thing is a problem as well. So so Barbara just seems to have um, some issues all around, but uh, there are some bright spots, and I think, you know, if the writers can take hold of those and really use those to, to grow and blossom um, the character, then I, th- I think it'll be great. I also agree with you about the Jim Gordon, the two-story arc where he tells her that he's Batman and they work together even though he doesn't know that she is Batgirl. I think that that was great. And uh, I actually recently make a comment on the Batman universe where the question is, will Duke Thomas become Robin? And honestly, while I don't think it's going to happen, I believe that I think the no-brainer Robin or a partner to Batman should honestly be Barbara Gordon. How wonderful would it be for Jim to find out that Babs is back or for her to reveal it and them to have that partnership. Not necessarily be her as Robin, but to have that partnership. Because look at how wonderful it was when they were taking down Livewire and how beautiful of a relationship that that father-daughter connection could could make. So, you know, that's my hoping. But I, I don't know if it will if it will happen. It's funny about Alicia, how you talk about her activism, uh, and I always say that it's funny because I feel like we've not seen her activism lately. It's been all about Joe, right, because I keep asking who's bringing in the money. And, and Joe, you do, you mentioned that she goes up against a Velvet Tiger, but it's because she caused those problems in the first place by accepting the Tigers, you know, trying to free them. So it's part of her uh, fault anyways. But yes, yeah, so thank you for writing in. Ian, I'm hoping, I, I hope for you that, that something changes and that you start enjoying the back row run or, you know, it, it just starts moving in a direction and, and has good relationships that uh, you and I can both approve of. Next from Pavel, or Pavel, I apologize. Uh, what do you think of the new DC superhero girl line and the back row figure? Also, what heroes or su- villains would you like to see? Any gender is fine. Now, I'm assuming that you're talking about the DC bombshells because that's sort of the, the newest line that has come out, which I actually really enjoy. Uh, I just enjoy looking back in time and reimagining these characters, and I'm actually writing reviews for the Batman universe on the bombshells, the, the DC digital first series and I was thinking I was looking through all the ones they have which they have a, a, I mean a great many of the main starlets of the DC universe some people they don't have casts I think would be interesting though I'm almost wondering if at that age you know they're going to make her like a little China doll because you know she's she's part partially Chinese Steph Brown I think would be interesting and then some other people that I I haven't seen yet none of the uh the Flash girlfriends or wives like Linda or Iris or uh, Star Sapphire I think would be a cool villain and it'd be also interesting to yeah look at more villains because we don't really see as many you know we've got Joker what would it be like to see Two-Face there Uh, I know they'll never make it but you know I have a fondness for Killer Moth and I wonder what he would look like back there in the 40s it'd be kind of interesting and fun I think and as for the Batgirl figure which 
uh, again, I assume you mean it could be the DC the the bombshell one, which actually the Batgirl one is probably my least favorite for some reason. I I can't really put my finger on it, but there are just other ones that I really like. That like the Black Canary one is one of my favorite ones. Just um, sort of the lounge singer looking one. The Star Girl is another one of my favorites. But yeah, the Batgirl one's not as I don't know. It's not as intriguing for me as as other ones. I mean, she's got her jetpack and everything, and it's a cool pose. But I kind of wish they did something else with her but it's hard because then you have batwoman right so you've got to make it make a distinction but overall they're very cool if i had lots of cash i (laughs) i would uh i would get one of those for sure on to Michael Ridge. He says, Salway Stella. Batgirl 44 sure moved things along, but we haven't reached the end of the story with the capture of the tiger. We still have a wedding and Frankie's future role to come. There is more to Batgirl's opposition of Frankie's trying to be a field hero than a need to work alone. After all, she gave Alicia a thumbs up when she got personally involved in removing Joe from the danger area. If you recall in the Secret Origins story... Barbara showed Frankie some fighting techniques. When Frankie tried to call a timeout, Barbara put her on the mat anyway and told her that you don't get to call timeouts in the real world. I think this attitude is as much of a problem as Frankie's physical limitations. I hope they talk this out soon and get back on track. Now, just a few random thoughts on the last two episodes. Barbara Gordon and the Killing Joke was more obviously injured than Black Canary and the Longbow Hunters. They were both victims, as you pointed out, and it is usually bad to try to rank victims. As I remember, the development of the Ollie and Dinah relationship after her injuries, it drove them apart, not closer together. One long-term effect of her injuries was that she couldn't have children, one reason I always thought she was raped multiple times. This physical inability got mixed up in her mind with her statement early in the Longbow Hunters that she wouldn't bring children into the world to become orphans. Their common experiences are among the reasons I want the two of them together. The birds are back. In Black Canary number 4, Donna calls Frankie to trace cell phone use as Donna tries to locate Ditto and her kidnapper, another oracle characteristic for Frankie. Frankie's implant is probably the same tech as the implant that helped Barbara walk again. Glad you are reading, Grayson. So you've met Jim and Juan before. This book gets one of the aspects of Dick's personality that I really like, but has been missing for a long time. When he was the first Robin, one of his nicknames was the Laughing Daredevil because he enjoyed the physicality of swinging through the air, running, jumping, rolling somersaults, punching bad guys. Grayson gets that right for him. Fly on. Thanks, Michael, for writing in. I definitely, yeah, I'm bummed that you you say we haven't reached the end of the story with the capture of the tiger. I totally agree with you. I think that it ended on a weird note, and I really wanted there to be another issue to follow up or maybe her to still be on the loose and then just sort of answer many of the questions that Don and I had regarding what was going on, what were her motives, etc. As for the Barbara Frankie relationship, just like Ian sort of brought up, it is a little bit dysfunctional and I think more thought needs to go into that. Why and how Babs can argue against this um, and is there a distinction between different people and can other people help her? Because yeah, you saw Alicia She's saying that, yeah, sure, go ahead, help out. And and I'm wondering if maybe she's looking at Frankie and seeing herself and seeing, you know, the problems she had and, and thinking, well, I don't know, that doesn't make sense either, right? Because she would never want to, to have been told, don't do this. She would have been super upset. So I don't know, I can't explain it. Uh, and I do want to talk about this later when I mention other places that Babs has been popping up in the DC universe because that is relevant as well. 
thanks for your thoughts on the longbow hunters. Um, sort of a, yeah, it was a tough question to answer. And I do remember that she was unable to bear children. And then she lost her canary cry for a little while until she was dumped in the, the Lazarus pit. And that sort of fixed itself. I didn't think about her getting raped multiple times, which is disturbing to say the least frankie popping up in black canary yes and of course black canary pops up in the the wedding issue so it's all the birds are back you said that and that's absolutely correct because i think we certainly have sort of a birds of prey family of books right now that sort of revolve around each other within the batman universe Next up, it is Dave. He says, hey, so it's Dave from Twitter. Just grabbing a moment and want to say you really have such an enjoyable show and fun presenting style. And really, thank you for your work on both Backroll the Oracle, which I find quite fascinating. I find your voice very relaxing, actually, when I'm writing. And also the Batman Universe podcast you do with Dustin and Ed. I find you all very amusing and quite interesting. It's quite nice to actually listen to the thoughts and comments about specific comic issues. I really do find it increases my enjoyment of those Bat books. I kind of love Batman in general, but sometimes I get a bit bored with the current stuff, especially if the story drags on too long, example Zero Year. And I don't mind sampling the classics, which I find digital comics on my iPad have made a lot more accessible. I don't think I could have finished Batman Eternal without the commentary from you guys. I stumbled across your show and I was really quite sick with this crazy flu and I was just almost hallucinating as I listened. And it really struck a chord in me as it was the episode on Killing Joke. And anyway, I just found it really emotional to think about. And then I just kind of drifted into regular shows, which I found very enjoyable. You have a slightly offbeat sense of humor and way of discussing the material that I both enjoy and share. I myself am a writer and have written a fantasy adventure series called Demorn Asante Innocent that I am shopping around, which is about a dimension-hopping bounty hunter called Demorn in an Earth where the fracture destroyed reality and timelines and memories and split reality into a splintered version of pocket dimensions. The event has also inserted a whole different set of memories and myths into the population. Demorn is one of the few people who remember the fracture. She crash-landed in the city of Babelzon with her brother after their homeworld Asante was destroyed in the fracture, and she's taken in by this group of thieves and mercenaries called the Innocents. Demorn can access the dimension of Firethorn, and she's dragged into an interdimensional invasion, which is destroying both Babelzon and Firethorn. Anyway, I've written the first one, and I'm shopping it to publishers, and I'm in the process of the follow-up book, which I'm about three-quarters of the way through the first draft of. So I want to grab a moment to thank you, and also just to give you some context, as I really have exchanged a lot of, hopefully, somewhat amusing comments with you on Twitter, and never sent you a personal hello as I intended to. I think it's just great the way you obviously put so much into your show, and it really is a very nicely produced piece. I've definitely often thought of starting a comic podcast, but I do question how much time I have on top of writing and tennis and work. I think it's just great the way you have a whole network of people to connect with, and I have to say they really seem nice. I also meant to ask you, after listening to your recent show with your friend, how are you enjoying Nightfall? I think there is so much great material for your show as you enter the 90s, and you're looking at a golden era of Dixon and Rucka and Brubaker, etc. on these books. So he says, okay, fly on, Babs lover, and then he gives a nice little smiley face emoji uh thanks for writing in dave yes we have been interacting a lot on twitter uh as for your nightfall hopefully the previous episode sort of answered it um really i enjoyed nightfall very much enjoyed it um i'm sorry it took me so long to read through it sometimes those big stories are overwhelming right because you want to sit down and 
really get into it, but then do you have the time? But I did, I did carve out the time and I really raced through it because of how much I enjoyed it. And good luck to you on your fantasy adventure series, Demorn. And uh, I know personally, because we've, we've chatted that it's actually been making headway and, and you're, you're pushing towards a release. So congratulations to you and keep up the hard work. And I'm looking forward to potentially reading that and, and, uh, getting to know more about those characters and apologies if i was pronouncing any of those words incorrectly you'll you'll have to correct me on twitter or uh another comment now moving on to episode 109 comments on that which was the john ostrander interview which just dropped from ian miller he says really great interview loved the insights into babs as oracle's creation even if it's depressing that DC didn't care about her at the time. I have zero faith that DC will respect Barbara in the video version of The Killing Joke. All the buzz surrounding it is Joker-Batman hype. There's no sense of the seriousness of the issues involved. I hope when you get to the Birds of Prey, you'll be able to have Chuck Dixon on again. His insight into shaping Barbara's character, particularly in her relationship with Dinah, would be fascinating. I totally agree with you. That's something I'm really looking forward to. And I also would like to chat with Gail Simone about her Birds of Prey run so you know here's hoping that that bridge is not burned and then i can you know go out and reach out to her and, and talk with her on birds of prey also from episode 109 michael ridge says good interview still it expanded the story from the killing joke special i haven't read suicide squad but this interview made it sound like a well-constructed series and donovan commented fantabulous job the both of you and finally our last comment is from angela She's very pleased with the the interview from John Ostrander. Obviously, very much struck a chord with her. And then she has some other comments talking about Nightwing Annual 2. She's heard of it, and with Dick sleeping with Babs, of course, when he delivered her invitation to his way into Quarry. But you're saying he also spent the night with Quarry right before proposing to Babs pre-Infinite Crisis? I'm sorry, Stella. I know they work well together, and they're your OTP, and that in reality Nightwing's unfaithfulness is a result of several writers making boneheaded decisions. But Barbara deserves better. Consider me Team Ted Cord from here on out. And you are not the only one about Ted. And I think it was Shag that I was talking to and I said you know they both decided that they were going to be friends and I think Shad said something about well that's what the guy always says Uh, she continues concerning the question of whether Babs would commit suicide yes it may be more realistic for someone with PTSD to go that route but I think it would be completely out of character for Barbara to end her own life it said people commit suicide because they've hit rock bottom and their life looks completely hopeless. Babs already hit rock bottom. It's called the killing joke. But instead of giving up and deciding her life was worthless, she refused to quit and chose to fight a different way. In fact, I'd say that's the underlying message of the Oracle character. Even when you lose everything and no one would blame you for giving up, you can still learn to adapt and rebuild your life. That's why Babs would never kill herself. She doesn't give up no matter how hopeless the situation. Totally agree with you there, Angela. And then finally, she says, at the end of one of the recent Gotham Academy reviews, you said, I really like this series. It's a great breath of fresh air. I hope it lasts a long time. Great. You had to jinx it, didn't you? I recently finished catching up with the BTO archives. Well, it's funny that they're archives now. And do you know what the last thing you said that about was? Young Justice. Now, if Gotham Academy gets prematurely canceled, it'll be all your fault. Winky smiley face. Well, thanks, Angela. So now I can feel guilty about that. That is all the listener emails 
for this episode. Thanks so much for writing in. Again, if you have any comments, questions, criticisms, uh, hopefully not harsh, of course, you can send them to backrolloracle at gmail.com or you can comment on the actual episode post on the Batman universe. Okay, well, I'm going to take a break now. And when I come back, I'm going to review Batgirl 45, The Wedding Issue, and Gotham number 11. But first, it's Zias' Radio Hour featuring Graduation by Vitamin C. Shadow that will follow us around Will this memory fade when I leave this town? I keep, keep 
Okay, we are back, and I have taken a return trip in my Wayback Machine, and I am now in the present day, 2015. And before I do my regular reviews, I just want to make a note that Batgirl has seriously been appearing in other books. It almost feels like 92-93 in the start of the Oracle fanaticism where she's going to pop up everywhere so Batgirl has been appearing in Justice League United since issue 12 she appeared in Grayson number 12 which I actually highly recommend it's sort of the the prodigal son again he returns to Gotham and he's interacting with all the different people that thought he was dead and and some great interactions between people lots of history noted and I also recommend Donovan's article that sort of looks at a lot of these speech bubbles and where they originally came from. Batman and Superman number 45, she actually saved Superman people. Take note. We are Robin number four, which was an amazing issue. And this is what I was talking about when I was previously mentioning this relationship between Frankie and Babs and Babs saying you can't do this is because she was talking to one of the We Are Robin characters and giving her sort of tips and encouragement and then actually also reflecting back and saying you know I I also was having this conversation with somebody else and saying you can't do it so she I don't know it's, it's funny that that was happening in, in another book but she I think she realizes that something is amiss even besides back row being in it number four was just an amazing issue we are Robin pick it up Batman and Robin Eternal number four, she pops up in there as well. And Scooby-Doo team up number 12. And thanks to Chris Carnes for sending me a copy of that. It seems like a Turok situation was almost going to happen where not a lot was ordered. And then it was like super expensive and just a nice uh, sweet gift from Chris Carnes. So just Batgirl is pretty heavy coming around. And if you are wanting to see what she's doing in those different books, then I would check her out there. Okay, well, let us, or let me, get into the reviews here. And starting off with, you guessed it, Batgirl number 45, Dearly Beloved. Writers Brendan Fletcher and Cameron Stewart, artist Babs Tarr, color Sergey Lapointe. It's the wedding day for Alicia and Joe, and Babs spends some time diffusing some emergencies like stains, lost earrings, and body odor. Alicia appears gorgeous in her gown, and Babs goes to check on Luke. She helps him tie his bow tie and secures the wedding ring right around his neck. As the two are about to have a moment, Dick Grayson appears in the window. What? Forks is growing on me. Could a guy have anything to do with that? <laughs> oh. Yeah. I knew it. Tell me everything. What is your job? Indy? I bet he's smart. Is he smart? Uh, Mama, I, can I talk to you later? Come on, we gotta talk boys. Are you being safe? How did you get in here? The window. Do you do that a lot? Um, just the past couple of months. I like watching you sleep. It's, um, it's kind of fascinating to me. Obviously, there's some awkwardness on either side, since Luke is wondering why Dick is alive, and Dick wonders what Luke is to Babs. Before much explanation can happen, Dick asks Babs to go outside with him. Now, she doesn't want to go, since, well, the ceremony is about to begin, but she ends up relenting and going with him, leaving a frustrated Luke. Babs lets Dick know how frustrated she is, and gets annoyed at him for shushing her, finally flipping her over her head. 
So Babs starts to walk away when Dick shows Babs that he took the ring on the necklace and he jumps off the building. Challenge accepted. Babs suits up and follows Dick for a couple wordless pages. When they finally meet up, they are at one of the first places they met at Heroes, when he was over his head with Killer Moth and she came to help as a pre-wheelchair backroll. Why did he bring her here? He just wants to know whether the one constant in his life is still with him. To my heartache, she is not. He can't just come back into her life like this, and she explains that she will always remember this wedding day as the time Dick stole the ring and stole her away from her boyfriend Luke. And Dick realizes, hey, this is true. They hug, they part amicably, and Dick says he'll always come back if she needs. Babs reappears right when Alicia is having a meltdown, and the ceremony begins, just as soon as Babs changes her shoes from her Batgirl boots. Too bad some rats made a nest out of her pumps where she left them on the rooftop. Alicia and Joe actually do get married. Black Canary plays 80s cover tunes, and Luke and Babs share a romantic dance. Say, little sister, what have you done? Say, little sister, who's the only one? I've been away for so long. I've been away for so long. I let you go for so long. It's a nice day to start again. Come on, it's a nice day for a white wedding. It's a nice day to start again. Babs apologizes for her earlier absence, but Luke understands that pasts don't just disappear. Dick watches on with a sad face, which very much reflects my own. And in the wee hours in the morning, Babs finally gets in and a shadowy figure appears in her doorway while she is sleeping. Next up, spoiler alert. Well, let me start off with the easy point to make, because you know you're waiting for me to give my thoughts on this issue. The art is amazing. I think that this, compared to Velvet Tiger's prior issue, shows us that art honestly is 50% of storytelling. And the return of Babs Tar is just a welcome arrival, which makes the story that much better. And I do have to say that the first image you see of Elysia, uh, just full from uh, foot to head, it's about page three or so, in her gown is perhaps one of the most beautiful images I have seen in this book. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's the bride situation. I don't know. It just looks like it's very beautiful. It's, it's wonderfully done. I also like how the sky changes color, you know, throughout the conversation between Dick and Baz as it, it, as it goes later into the evening. But overall, it's just wonderful to have Babs Tar back. She really had her signature on this particular issue, and I think it made it all the more wonderful. Now that that's over with, let me surprise you and tell you that I actually really enjoyed this issue. I think it's really well done. It's a fun read. But, you know, as a Dick and Babs fan, of course, I am pretty disappointed at the ending. Now, something that I don't normally do is really go page by page. I, you know, I just get my thoughts overall. Sometimes I have nitty gritty details, but I've decided that this time I think I'm going to go page by page, just kind of give you my thoughts on what is going down. So we'll say that, I guess, page one, if we want to do that with on the inside, the cover is not counting as one. We start off, you know, with, with Babs having her survival kit, all of this meltdown going on, and it just starts off with a really fun note, right? You see that that crazy image with, with Babs going, ah, and, you know, the dress is ruined, lost the back of the earring, I forgot my deodorant, and she is just calm as can be, 
and she's got this survival kit ready to go. It's just classic Babs, classic fun way to start it off. Now the next page is of course that image I'm talking about with with uh, Alicia and I just I beg you to look at it and just see how beautiful it is with what with the the background and just uh, I don't know the it's it's her face I don't know it's everything I just think that it's probably one of the most beautiful depictions especially of Alicia that we've seen because she's not always had that so I'm glad that that turned out well for her. Then we have a fun interaction, I guess, between Babs and Luke. Uh, I do sort of wonder why Babs has a cell phone around. But then again, I am thinking that if there is a meltdown, she needs to get contacted. But Luke seems to be taking his time. And I do wonder why Luke has the ring. Did Babs give him the ring for safekeeping? Who knows? But I'm glad, you know, she puts it around her neck, uh, which later on you kind of wonder how did Dick Grayson get it off her neck. But if you've been reading Grayson, you see that he is able to remove lots of articles of something without many people knowing so anyways fun there and then we have that nice scene where she is uh, tying his bow tie in the in the next page i love that it's yellow to go with her purple dress i think the colors certainly are purposeful here and uh yeah it's got the nice little double entendre because uh she says now let's address this questionable choice of bow and she wasn't talking about b-e-a-u but uh b-o-w uh, and they almost have a moment right and then shockingly here we have dick grayson and to be honest obviously if i didn't know that dick grayson was appearing it is it is a little bit random you know how did he know that this is where she was going to be why are you popping in at this moment of all moments it's a little strange right we had this uh and later on i'm gonna bring this up again because he, he talks about it being a really crazy time and it's not the best time so why are you taking time out of your schedule now to do this and how did you find her a little bit stalker so anyways it's a fun image though the way he is very dashing in the window and I enjoy that. And then we do honestly have an awkward conversation, both shock and somewhat annoyance on the faces of of Luke and Dick. Luke obviously and rightly calls him out for pretending to be dead when his father, uh, Lucius, would have been rightly devastated. He also reflects back on, on Dick being a fun guy, a fun kid, just leaping around Wayne Enterprises, I guess. And I guess I'm shocked here be just because Luke is in the equation that Barbara ends up going with Dick. Obviously, in my heart, as a fan of Dick and Babs, I would want this to happen. But when your potential boyfriend, right, because or Babs does say we're together and then they there's like an aside and Luke asks, is that official now? I took you to wedding, so maybe, Babs is saying. So if they're official now, why are you going off? I think that's a little strange. Ugh, I don't know. It's I have such mixed feelings. But, uh, you know, Luke is rightly frustrated, and, you know, he, he undoes his tie that Babs just tied for him. So you can see the frustration all in that moment. But I do think that that's a bit of an insensitive thing for Barbara to do, but she sort of backed into a corner, isn't she? And the look of jealousy, which is not the first look of jealousy that we see on Dick's face. So I question, why do you not let them get together if he's going to be so jealous about it? Uh, and then this interesting moment up on the roof. So perhaps she agreed to go with him just so she could yell at him, which works out. And then rightly, I mean, he's just like so dismissive almost. And like he just wants to talk, doesn't want to hear her. as guys do right so uh you know she gets upset flips him and that's when he steals the ring and then she gets even more upset but then she figures out it's going to be uh, a little bit fun so i feel like this issue 
honestly, I think captures this strange relationship, this fun, romantic, non-romantic relationship between Dick and Babs, because of course she's frustrated, but then now it's all fun and games when he's leaping off uh, the building. Though I do wonder why she has the backpack with her stuff in it, which was also the backpack that had the ring in it. So (laughs) what's she thinking is going to happen? I guess it's like either Teen Titans 100 or the Spider-Man wedding annual, perhaps, that something bad's going to happen. A couple of wordless pages, which I actually just like them chasing after each other and just seeing the fun that sometimes they have and also sometimes it's not fun because you can see her face being really determined and then somewhat frustrated. And then they have sort of a walk down memory lane, not really liking the Killer Moth costume, the outfit, but just backflat and nor the the outfit for Dick Grayson, which seems more of an amalgamation of Dick Grayson and, and Tim Drake, Robin. But just to, to see, again, their history, which is so... Their, their relationship is just so much history, which was one of the things, right, that I debated with Tom Panarese. Lots of history there. Yeah, it's just nice to see one of the first moments that they met each other. And then you have this big page, right, which I guess is, is 12 or so. My life right now is insane. Everything's different. The whole world's changed. And I, I just need to know. I need to know where I stand on at least one thing, the single most important thing in my life. And so there's almost a moment there. And he says, you know, it's always been you. And she says no. And she is going to reflect and look back on this and, and think about what he did at this very moment, at this very day. And it's just a bummer that I, I think she speaks truth. She, there, there's lots of truth, I think, that goes on here because, of course, it was a very selfish thing to do. I don't know why, again, why he would pick today of all days to do this when there were opportunities elsewhere or it's just too crazy. Why not wait until all the craziness dies down and then do it? And it's not like he's been watching her because the Luke thing is a surprise. It's not like he's trying to do that. And, you know, it may have been too late there, but there are better opportunities perhaps Or maybe this is just one of those things where there's no good time. There's no good time. So this is when she says no. And heart breaks, right? Because I I do want her to be together with Dick as a a fan. But as a reader, I think that it makes sense that she say no. Just in the different places that they are. She's with Luke. So honestly, I'd be more upset with her if she did say yes to Dick and then just sort of left Luke where he was. I mean, that would be not a good characterization as well. But the bad thing is that I feel like we're just being told that Babs and Dick do belong together, but they're never going to be together. So as long as I'm reading these two, I'm never going to find a happy ending for them. I think maybe the only happy ending I could find was um, Gil Simone's Convergence, right, where they actually did get married. Uh, I mean, just think about how many times we've actually seen a similar interaction to this go down, you know, where they decide that they can't be together. So that's, it's just a bummer. But but again, there is, I think, truth spoken here. And, and I can appreciate Baz wanting to move forward with her life and, and not be held in the past or just always waiting for Dick. But I'm still, you know, disappointed that this was unfortunately how it turned out. So then 
I, I do like that he says he'll he'll be there for her, and then they go back. There's almost a meltdown. Glad Black Canary, there's a connection there. She comes back. Oh, and by the way, sorry, there's a detail here on that page following, I believe it's page uh, 14 here, where Frankie is texting Babs, right? But do you notice that Frankie's cell phone is on the table while Frankie is doing some alterations? And then you see in the next panel, you see these sort of blue, almost like Bluetooth signals coming out. So she is still uh, out of her neck. She's still using that device. It's connecting to her neck. She's using it to talk to her cell phone, which is in turn talking to Babs. And again, I just think that's dangerous. But a detail that I didn't catch the first time that I I watched it. So minor meltdown, the boots, the the rat nest was kind of funny about that. The wedding page, the sequence itself, for some reason, is not as beautiful, I think, as it could be, right? I like the layout and everything, but for some, it just looks like it's blurry. Maybe it's, we're supposed to imagine tears are boring the, the image, but it just doesn't look as clear as the rest of the book does. And I'm not too sure about that. I'd like to have some more information about this this pastor person who actually marries them, uh, what her story is. Is she related to these people? Joe's hair sure did seem to grow since the last issue, but we'll, we'll go on with that. Then we have the, the Babs and Luke dance. And the first time I read this, I thought, oh, he, he's, I think he's too easy, easy in the fact that, I mean, he just sort of lets it go that, hey, you know, everyone's got a pass, we're okay. I think that he'd be still a little frustrated if someone, honestly, personally here, but we all know that girls hold things a little bit more longer than boys do, but if someone were to run off on me, even if he came back uh, to go with somebody else, I think I'd still be pretty hurt and frustrated on that. So he may let it go after some time, but I think at that night, he'd probably still be a little upset. But this is also... The fact where we, or the the panel, we get another sort of jealous and sad dick, which again breaks my heart. But, you know, if this is how we leave Luke and Babs, then perhaps we may see it for a little bit longer. And it's sweet that he wanted to check in on her and be sure that she got home safe. Then we have the shadowy figure, of course. So this is very much a a fun one shot, I think. It it wrapped up, I guess, one storyline right that that started off a couple issues ago you didn't necessarily need this right or you could have had a special but didn't further any any other plots except for the wedding but it doesn't seem like it's unnecessary because i i think that i i certainly wasn't bored i very much enjoyed it it's just kind of weird though when she goes to bed that then we have this shadowy figure and so it's like at the very end you had to let someone know that we were going to move on from there and have another storyline So very much enjoyed it. You're maybe wondering what did I think about the actual wedding going through. Yes, I'm disappointed. I still hold fast to my thoughts about Kate and Maggie. Talking with Donovan, he said he sort of looks at it differently now because, of course, Alicia is transgendered, right? So in a way, it is a a flagship or um, it's pioneering something because you have a transgendered woman meet marrying a woman so that's different than you know maggie and kate so you know in a way they're still paving paving the way for for more diverse couples but i'm still i will still mourn for kate and maggie so overall from all of that rambling i will just say that i really enjoyed the issue as a comic fan and reader thought it was wonderful as a dick and Babs fan disappointed but you know sometimes you can't let that shadow your thoughts on the rest of the issue. So I'm going to give this 9.5 out of 10 bats.
Moving on to the next and final book, Gotham Academy number 11, Mission Gotham. Writers Becky Cloonan and Brendan Fletcher. Artists Carl Kershaw with Masasek and Ming-Wei Helen Chen. Colors Sir J. LaPointe and Masasek. The issue opens with Olive telling Professor Strange about her visions of her mother and wanting to go on the field trip to the tennis tournament in Gotham. Strange advises against it, but she says, I'll be okay, and she'll be careful. On the bus, everyone is giving Kyle confidence while Maps talks a little about the plan and mentions Catherine is going to help out too by cheering Kyle on while the group is on mission. Catherine seems super enthused, i.e. not at all. Maps reminds Kyle of his duties to the mission. Colton loses sight of Kyle at some point and then Kyle slips and falls. So kind of weird things that don't seem to have anything to do with it is going on, but they're making a point of showing it. So something must be happening. The group runs into an alley and Maps sets out her master plan. Pomeline and Colton go to Pomeline's mother's law office to dig through Sybil Silverlock's case file while Maps and Olive go to City Hall to examine the old paper records. Olive and Maps, the latter sporting a domino mask, make it to City Hall and take a rope down through a skylight. They avoid a guard and make their way to the records room. Olive takes the time to thank Maps, happily surprised that they are still friends, even though she is no longer with Kyle. Olive goes to find the records while Maps stays as lookout when suddenly Red Robin appears. Startled, Maps throws the batarang she got from Damien, but Red Robin catches it and says they are on the same team and also shows her the other Robins that are running around, i.e. the We Are Robin people. He finds out that they are both looking for information on Calamity, and he recounts an early mission with Batman and Robin, Dick Grayson, where a whole block of the Narrows had gone up in flames. They defeated Calamity and, and unmasked her as Sybil Silverlock. She wasn't the first Silverlock to do these things, and they locked her up, and Batman began watching Olive for obvious reasons. Olive finds in the records that there are generations of Silverlocks who have been firestarters when Calamity appears in the room and beckons to Olive. Red Robin and Maps burst in, but Olive is more concerned about her mother. Calamity disappears and drops some strange item. Red Robin goes off while telling Maps she did a good job. Then Maps gets a call that Kyle has gone missing. At the tennis stadium, the reunited group investigates the locker room. Colton breaks into Kyle's locker and finds another piece of a key which connects to the piece Calamity dropped. It is a key to Arkham Asylum. Next, mothers and daughters. Okay, so here's the first big question. What sort of school brings children on a field trip to a city that is on fire? Um, how much are you paying in tuition for these people to protect your children? Catherine is still hanging around with that same sort of dopey look on her face, super depressed and sort of needing maybe some preparation age for her, you know, her, you know, the bags under her eyes. You know what I'm talking about. Probably you don't, but some beauty pageant people use like, what is it called? It's some sort of ointment. It doesn't matter, but it, preparation age is one of them to sort of like uh, contract the, uh, the skin. Anyways, moving on. So she, I'm still not sure if, if whether she's a person or a piece of clay face. Because she doesn't, Mavs makes a point of saying she doesn't want to morph into something. She doesn't know what'll happen without her dad. Still kind of wondering uh, what the situation is with that. What's going on with Kyle? Who knows? Why is Colton trying to keep track of him? Who knows? Why is Kyle falling down? Who knows? Uh, lots of weird stuff that you're like, why is this in here? But if it's in there, it's got to make it's got to have some sort of purpose, right? Now, I was actually writing my show notes. I actually had sort of this epiphany that Colton is gay. We'll see if this happens. But this here's my thinking. Now, if you remember, Pomeline said, I know who you like. And he's like, how do you know all this, right? Why is he 
keeping track of Kyle. Oh, why is Kyle so important? He's not to this plan. Kyle just has to go off and play tennis. So I'm thinking he's gay. He's got a crush on Kyle. And I think that this would be shocking, right? Because it it's counterintuitive because I think we all thought that he liked Olive. I, even I did. So that's my guess. And we'll see if this pans out or not. Maps continues to use maps to make her plans, which I really liked. I also liked that she was embracing the hero with the domino mask. Little pieces. She had the battering. Now she's got the domino mask. She's probably going to be a We Are Robin, isn't she? I love the scenes with all the maps, which really seems like old times because it's been a while since they've been alone. And it also gives them an opportunity in not really great circumstances to clear the air. Something interesting that the art has been doing is getting rid of the floor of one panel in the on a page. You need to check this out. It happens a couple times. And I was having the characters walk on air or walk on the ceiling of the next panel. I just think that this is a really interesting choice and different. It also gives space up for some of these panels. Not as It's not bound within a box. I was surprised all found the file so quickly, and I almost think it was planted for her. I mean, think about who knew she was going to be there. Professor Strange. And then suddenly Calamity appears? Please. I, I'm still thinking Professor Strange has something to do with this. The fact that Calamity's curse travels through the Silverlock family makes me again think of Millie Jane Cobblepot, which we haven't really talked about for a while. And just the idea of being shaped by a family, but trying to make one's own way. I can see this being something that Olive tries to fight against, despite being possibly seduced by the dark side. We're certainly making our way through the Bat family, aren't we? Uh, Maps just seems to be as enamored with Tim as she was with Damien. And she's clearly interested in the We Are Robin team, so I'm wondering if this will help set up the tie-in to the Robin War. Damien's appearance brought in some history of Batman with him, and here we also see Tim tell of Dick and Bruce's fight against Calamity. And I like that the art changes with the look into the past to sort of distinguish it from the present time. Look at how dedicated Olive is to this mystery. I mean, she's pushing Matt's out of the way and just wanting to get closer to her would-be mother, and yet that doesn't work, but uh, we're given yet another mystery. And I'm not really sure how Calamity and Kyle's stories work together, but hey, I'm sure we're going to find out soon. Though now would probably be the time to call upon Croc if the gang is going to go to Arkham. I'm going to give this 8.5 out of 10 diplomas. I enjoyed it, you know, liked the, uh, especially liked the scenes with Maps and Olive, but it seems like there are random pieces mixed into this greater mystery. And I just would have liked to focus on the Calamity story for all 22 pages and then find a satisfying ending rather than being distracted from it each issue. Next up is Black Canary number five. Ditto is back in town. The band sort of talks about Bo Maeve and the history of the band getting together. And Dinah talks to her ex-husband that uh, maybe the record label has something to do with the bad stuff that's been going on and trying to get Ditto. And then suddenly there's Gauntlet thrown down for Battle of the Bands. And Bo Maeve and her new band go up on stage for... The Battle of the Bands, and she uses her canary cry, and that is where we ended. Uh, interesting stuff. Mystery is deepening, of course, with Ditto and why she seems so important. And I'm still kind of wondering why Kurt Lance is still there, which is a little awkward. And then we have Bo Maeve, and I'm not really sure what's going on there or why there's a white canary. Can't really figure that out either, uh, though it seems like kind of reminds me of an X-Men issue that was recently happening where they had Dazzler and they were almost siphoning off like her blood and her, her mutant gene to help other mutants who had lost their powers. It seems like they're stealing blood 
and DNA and stuff from Donna and maybe creating black canaries because Bo Maeve had to have her power sometimes. But uh, still, you know, a bit of a slow burn, but still interesting. There are just a lot of story elements going on, basically, is what I'm trying to say. So I'm going to give this 8.5 out of 10 rock stars. Now over to Chris for his Batman 66 review. Hey, thank you very much, Stella. As always, I appreciate you letting me give you a little break. Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Batman 66 review segment. I'm very glad to be with you today. Thank you for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. I'm Chris, and this is the segment where I review the Batman 66 title. Today, I'll look at the Halloween-themed Batman 66, number 28, cover dated December 2015. The cover art was provided once again by Michael and Laura Allred, and the contents were originally released in download format. This issue has two stories, and our first story is entitled Scarecrow Comes to Town written by Jeff Parker and art by Lucas Kettner. Our story opens with Batman and Robin arriving at police headquarters to find the Scarecrow stealing bank bags. The Scarecrow quickly sprays our heroes with fear gas, giving them both frightful hallucinations. They quickly shake off the effects of the fear gas and go to the Batcave to trace the gas's makeup before the Scarecrow can release the gas on Gotham City. A soil sample leads our heroes to the rural place called Jitter's Holler. Once there, they meet a hillbilly couple, who offer them grits and who speak of their neighbors, the Cranes, who ran a boarding house and took care of a baby boy that a boarder left behind. The boy was named John, and he was severely bullied by the Cranes' biological son, Zeke. John grew up and got a scholarship and returned to Jitter's Holler, but then departed again. Meanwhile, back in Gotham City, the Scarecrow is tormenting the citizens with fear gas, only to be confronted by someone else who looks exactly like the Scarecrow, but suddenly reveals himself to be Zeke. The sudden fear of this causes the Scarecrow to collapse in fear. Batman and Robin reveal themselves as Batman was disguised as Zeke, figuring that bringing back Crane's memories would shut him down, and further explained that the refined distilled corn was a component of the fear gas, and eating grits gave them a bit of immunity. Batman and Robin leave the Scarecrow in the care of Dr. Hugo at the Arkham Institute. The end. The next story is entitled Hunt the Croc Down, and again was written by Jeff Parker, but the art this time is by Dean Haspiel. This story opens up with a nighttime setting, as a uniformed guard handling a money transfer is jumped by Killer Croc. Meanwhile, at Stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Dick Grayson, Alfred answers the hotline and tells the commissioner that Batman and Robin are out on patrol. The commissioner and Chief O'Hara illuminate the bat signal, and our heroes are told of a man-like dinosaur on a rampage. Batman quickly ascertains that the creature must be one of King Tut's henchmen, named Waylon, who transformed after drinking an ancient Egyptian elixir way back in Batman 66, number 8. Our heroes then pay a call on a woman named Eva, who was Waylon's girlfriend. Eva offers their heroes a drink, but Batman quickly notes that an ottoman is out of place, and Croc comes out of hiding. A fight quickly ensues, and Croc manages to escape, and our heroes tie up Eva. The dynamic duo track Croc down in the sewer system, and after a bat fight, manage to cuff Croc to a cement pillar. The end. I thought these two stories were pretty cut and dry. I gather that Jeff Parker is trying to get in as many of the Batman rogues into the Batman 66 continuity before the series goes away. 
and hopefully this is just a hiatus. And the inclusion of the Scarecrow and Killer Croc were appropriate choices for an issue that came out just days before Halloween. Neither a villain appeared on the 66 Batman TV series, and only the Scarecrow was around at this time, predating Killer Croc's first appearance in the comics some 15 to 20 years later. The Scarecrow's first Silver Age comic book appearance was in Batman number 189, cover dated February 1967. We got some effective writing as to the villain's origins, in particular, the childhood of Dr. Jonathan Crane. The villain's backstory seemed to dominate both tales, so much so that they would suffice just being origin stories, and each of them and their subsequent apprehensions just served as an ending point. They only posed a mild threat in each respective story, and there were no real cliffhangers. The artwork was good, and each respective artist was well-suited with the depictions of the villains. Over on the TBU website, Jerry Green gave this 2.5 out of 5 stars. I'll be slightly more generous and give Batman 66 number 28 6.5 out of 10 bats based on the new takes of their origins. Before I go, as this is a Batman 66 segment, I'm obliged to acknowledge the passing of George Barris, who just died this past November 5th at age 89. Barris was charged with the task of designing the Batmobile for the 60s Batman TV series and used a mid-1950s Lincoln Futura concept car for the show. Barris Custom Industries also built the Munster Coach and the casket-turned-dragster Dragula on the Munster's TV series, along with many other vehicles. Also, I want to give a big shout-out to Jennifer Rose for her awesome take on the Yvonne Craig Batgirl cosplays. Very well done. Hey listeners, please feel free to leave any comments on the TBU website, and please give us a good review or on iTunes. Thank you again for your continued support. What devious designs does Catwoman have for the dynamic duo? How will Batman 66 close out its catastrophic final issue? How will Batgirl come to aid Batman and Robin when they meet the man from Uncle? And what dire threats will they face? The answer to these enigmatic escapades to be expressed exasperately next time. Same Stella feed, same Stella sight. Thank you, Chris. I feel that this episode is going to be a long one already. And so for that reason, I'm going to keep Bads in the Tube on hiatus. And you won't probably hear it next month, but I won't promise anything. So if not, then you'll hear it in January. So fingers crossed. But yeah, we're reaching the end of The New Adventures of Batman too. Uh, and finally, it's my literature recommendation. And sometimes it seems like I've got multiple books out, depending on when I record this. But anyways, I've got three literature recommendations. Uh, one is Swimming with Giants, My Encounters with Whales, Dolphins, and Seals by Anne Collette. And Anne describes the power and majesty of being close to some of nature's most magnificent creatures, she combines science with a sense of adventure, conveys the sheer excitement of her work from I the tale of a white whale to saving animals harmed by drift nets or toxic spills. And it is a memoir, uh, very interesting, especially if you are interested in sea life or if you would like to be a marine biologist. The next, wow, I just realized that all three of my literature recommendations are true stories. The next one is the Bielski Brothers, the true story of the three men who defied the Nazis, built a village in the forest, and saved 1,200 Jews. It's a nonfiction book by Peter Duffy, and it tells the story of Tuvia Bielski, Alexander Bielski, and 
Aaron Bielski and Azael Bielski, and these are four Jewish brothers. They established a partisan camp in the forests of Belarus during World War II, and they ended up saving, of course, 1,200 Jews from the Nazis. And uh, it describes how in 1941, these three brothers witnessed their parents and two other siblings being led away to their eventual murders. The brothers fought back against Germans and collaborators, waging guerrilla warfare in the forests of Belarus. And by using their intimate knowledge of the dense forests surrounding the towns of Lida and Novogrudek, the Bielskis evaded the Nazis and established a hidden base camp, then set about convincing other Jews to join their ranks. And if this sounds familiar to you, it may be, because there's a movie in, oh goodness, maybe 2007? I just rewatched it too, something like that, uh, called Defiance, starring Daniel Craig. Leave Schreiber and Jamie Bell. And it was actually 2008. I was very close, though. And finally, a heartbreaking work of staggering genius, which is a memoir by Dave Eggers released in 2000. And it chronicles his stewardship, Dave's, of younger brother Christopher Toph Eggers following the cancer-related deaths of his parents. And they died within about five months of each other. And so it's just uh, his life with his brother and sort of going between brother and parent to Toph. Yeah, so there you go. Three literature recommendations that uh, I found very interesting and very different, all three of them. We've got guardianship, Jews during World War II, and marine life. Well, that is it for this wonderful oversized episode. Always, you know, I'm just trying to keep it from three hours, so I apologize because I know that it's three hours, isn't it? As always, you can send any questions or comments to backroll.oracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, follow it on Twitter at backroll.oracle. Like the Batman Universe on Facebook and Twitter as well. Once again, thanks to My High Comics for sponsoring Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. And thanks to my dear friend Shag, who for the fifth time maybe has come on the show. He likes to call 2015 the year of the Shag. And you better believe it, right? But that is the last time you hear from him in 2015. But you can probably expect him to pop up again sometime in 2016. But won't spoil when that is. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Stay safe. Do not go into any turkey-related or induced comas. Maybe go on some sort of turkey trot or drumstick dash or something. So until I speak to you again, which will be, guess what, guys? The sixth anniversary of Backroll the Oracle. Until that time, fly on, Baz lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? You know, what type of, you know how uh, there's a multiverse, you know? Yeah. What type of Earth do you think it would take for you and Donovan to be best friends? <laughs> you know there's actually no real animosity between you, at least on my part. Oh, I know, I know. Okay, good. But What's the longest show you've done? It Probably four. four. You did a four-hour show? Maybe, yeah. But that's probably because people are on. It's not just me. Yeah, you're, you're still in control. Somebody should be driving the bus. <laughs> We had a lot to talk about. 
I don't know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Likely okay. story. I wonder whatever happened to that guy. You know what? While we're doing this, I'm going to research whatever happened to that writer, unless you already did it. I didn't. I researched about... You know I don't do research for my own show. Um, you suck. <laughs> Actually, we, we've mentioned it on your show previously. Maybe. I promise you I have. <laughs> okay. Uh, looks like it was... <clears throat> yeah. Hope you edit, because this is going to need to come out. <laughs> okay. That's it. Look, under two <laughs> hours. Why are you laughing? I guess I was being mean to you at the well, end. Now that's <laughs> I cracked what's myself up. End, I guess. There's a diamond comic box. I saw that. <laughs> Do you know what that is? Diamond? It's the, um, what are those people called? The distributors. They're the yeah, ones who distribute to, yeah, they distribute Yeah, well, I'm not yeah. completely imbecilic. I didn't think you were imbecilic. <laughs> Do you know what diamond is? No, I just... <laughs> are you are you, are you you a cat person? I like cats, yeah. Yeah? Yep. I had a yeah, black I mean, cat you... of my own, but his name was Darren. Darren? Like, uh... Like, like Stevens? Yes. No. Bewitched. You did not need Yeah. Him. You really need it for Bewitched? Oh, yeah. I was talking about Darren Stevens just yesterday. Yep. So. <laughs> oh, well, thanks for keeping him in this time. That's fun. So which, uh, so which Darren Stevens is better, the first or second? Oh, dear. I would say the first. Really? Wait, am I... Maybe I don't know which one is which. I don't know which 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 one. There, there's the there's the the the. No, I'll finish. Today. I'll finish any one of these sentences. There's the short one with like the black hair. See here. And then there's the tall one. I think most people like the first one better. I've got a Dick York. He's probably the first one. I don't know. Oh, that's gonna be. Here, I, all right. I guess I got to Google this now. Oh, I was trying to. Send oh you this yeah, it's a, and then Dick Sargent is the second one. You're kidding me. They had the same first name. Apparently. Yeah. Well, part of the reason it's the I, first one is my. Per- preference that's the one most people like for some reason i like the second one better i will let you go now uh say goodbye to remington for me what color is remington oh he's he's a giant enormous black cat he's uh he's black he's got little white tips of his paws are white well i'm sorry his back paws have a chunk of white his front paws have just a little tiny white hey remy over here uh thank you and then his <laughs> mouth is actually white. Okay. So his whole face is black, yeah. except for his mouth and his whiskers are, black, are white. He's a, he's a gorgeous cat. He, he's an incredibly handsome cat. My wife and I are constantly commenting on just... <laughs> well, no, because like, like the way he sits... Dog. No, I mean, he just... First of all, he's huge. He's massive. But he's chub-chub? No. Um, he, he's Well, he used to be, but not anymore. But he's just a large animal. He's like a small panther. He's enormous. <laughs> Um, well, we used to have we used to have this little cat, right? We had this little tiny kitten who, I mean, she wasn't a kitten, but she was full grown. She was small, and she would like walk in the room with people like, "Oh, you got a cat? That's cute." And then he'd come around the corner, and they'd be like, "Oh my god, it's a panther!" You know, because <laughs> uh, by size compare, I mean, he's bigger than my dog. Wow, this 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 cat is not small. He's enormous, um, but he's a completely gentle soul. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he's but he's 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 long haired, and I, I'm I guess I'm I'm showing my pride. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, just, I think he's an incredibly handsome cat. He's just so, and he sits so regal. Like some cats are just kind of flop around. He just sits very regal, as if like you know he's looking over his kingdom and his domain. I like, I don't know. I, I think he's descended from lions. Why or something. didn't you call him Mufasa? Because I liked the name Remington okay. Steel. <laughs>